I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... MK Ultra. What is MKUltra? It's a governmental program conducted throughout the 60s involving experiments in mind control, drug-induced torture, advanced interrogation techniques, medical crimes against humanity, and hypnotized military super-soldiers that, the more you learn about it, sounds like something that couldn't have possibly actually happened. It sounds like something straight out of the imagination of Alex Jones, or a convoluted plot point in the sprawling insanity of QAnon. And yet, Everything we know about the program is 100% true. Sure, there are some embellishments and ways that MKUltra has been woven into conspiracy theories that are demonstrably false and made up, but it still stands that the program exists as one of the world's true blue confirmed conspiracies. And the scariest thing? We almost never knew about it if it hadn't been for a simple clerical error. LSD, Nazis, and the indomitable spirit of men who are afraid. After World War II, the global superpowers were more paranoid than they'd ever been. The good guys had won, but nuclear bombs were a thing now, and everyone had collectively seen the devastation they could cause. Nobody felt in control anymore. This worldwide panic caused a surge in weapons development. From nuclear bombs, we exponentially graduated to chemical and then biological weapons soft, silent killers. Everybody wanted the opportunity for a sneak attack, and the goalpost on sneakiness was moving further and further with every stir of a beaker. What's worse, there had been tons of rumors throughout the war that German Nazi scientists were heavily experimenting with people's brains, using their massive pool of test subjects in complete absence of ethics or regulation to advance research on mind control techniques far beyond what anybody else in the world could even fathom. Progress through cruelty. Nobody wanted to be left behind. So there was an almost hungry, hungry hippos-like frenzy to scoop up as many Nazi scientists as possible. In the United States, the government launched a secret initiative called Operation Paperclip to import these German scientists and get them involved in research on weapons, medicine, and most importantly, experimental warfare. Scientific ways of implanting thoughts into people's minds, making people do things against their will. They wanted to benefit from a decade of the Third Reich's crimes against humanity. In September of 1947, also due to mounting paranoia, the CIA was founded. The most dangerous currency in the world conflict was no longer guns, territory, manpower, or strategy. It was information, and the U.S. needed some way to control that too. In 1949, the Hungarian Catholic official Cardinal Joseph Minzenti was arrested due to his outspoken criticism of the Soviet Union and his anti-fascist activism and advocacy for the better treatment of Hungarian Jews. He was put on trial in the Soviet-run People's Court and sentenced to life imprisonment for supposedly committing treason towards the Hungarian government, at the time in close control by the Russians. Multiple CIA operatives were in attendance at the trial, and what they witnessed sent the agency on a path that could change their long-term goals overnight. According to these operatives, the Cardinal fully confessed to every crime he was accused of during the trial, which was odd considering that he had maintained his innocence and denounced any notion that he was treasonous up until that day he was finally arrested. He was an outspoken government agitator, unlikely to roll over as easy as he was right there before their eyes. The agents also noted that the Cardinal seemed to be heavily under the influence of some kind of 
mind-altering drug, describing him as noticeably inebriated. When the men brought this news home, it sent shockwaves through the agency. They became convinced of what they saw as the obvious fact that the Russians had possession of mind-controlled drugs developed by their pool of acquired Nazi scientists. The United States was woefully behind in their advancements in the field and needed to get up to speed quickly. So let's let's just quickly establish let's just quickly establish that everything we're about to talk about tonight and just in general the founding and development of the Central Intelligence Agency and just the decades of conspiratorial government experiments happening under our noses was all influenced by our Woodrow Wilson character. <laughs> Because they, these these CIA guys, they were just they were at this trial, and there was this uh, Hungarian cardinal up on the stage, just being interrogated by Russian officials, and he was just like, "I did it. I did the whole thing. I did all the conspiracies. It was me. I admit to all of it, and I'm very sorry." And they were just like, "Oh, fuck." Was it that, or was it he up there initially? Being like, I don't know, man, I, some, of my, some of my friends are Jews, but not like that. Not like that. Like, they actually are. Like, Jews are pretty cool, man. I don't know why we're all being so crazy. I feel like we maybe should, like, stop with the anti-Semitism. Would that be cool? Would that be cool? And everyone was kind of like, nah. And then they drugged him. And then that's when he did that. I mean, that's 100% what happened. <laughs> he starts out with, some of my best friends are Jewish people. I really, they got some cool traditions. Have you ever taken a look at the little in cap at Vons? The stuff that's on there is it looks pretty good. I've I've actually looked in it. The matzo ball soup. I mean, look, judge, judge, come here, judge. Look at look at me in my eyes, judge. Look at me in my eyes and tell me you've never eaten unleavened bread. Kosher meats, kosher meats. I don't know what it is about. I know they're just blessing. I know it's the same as normal meats, but they're just with the blessing. But like. It tastes better, man. They're like, drug him. Give him the Nazi juice. <laughs> Give drug him more. He's not drugged enough. Drug him more. The CIA almost immediately began conducting research into mind control. An internal agency memo in June of 1951 mentioned scientific methods for controlling the minds of individuals. This led the agency down a dark, secretive road that would eventually result in the launching of the MK Ultra program in 1953. Alan Doles, then director of the CIA, ordered the program into operation, and at the time, it was one of the biggest and most important projects within the organization. This wasn't the way the X-Files portrayed it, with the agency bosses sticking some weirdos in a corner and ignoring them while they trotted around the globe exploring a world of paranormal oddities. MKUltra, a project delving into the science fiction world of mind control and brainwashing, was one of the agency's top priorities. One of the program's earlier projects, Subproject 8, was budgeted at an estimated $39,500, which would be $405,000 when adjusted for inflation in 2021. The project's primary goal, according to declassified CIA papers, was to conduct a, quote, study of the biochemical, neurophysiological, sociological, and clinical psychiatric aspects of LSD, and also a study of LSD antagonists and drugs related to LSD, such as LAE, for use in mind-altering tactics during enemy warfare. So imagine this. You're a chemist working late into the night at a big pharmaceutical company in Sweden. You're trying to develop a new treatment for a sleep apnea using a rare type of fungus. It's been years, but still no luck. You dump the latest batch down the drain, back to the drawing board. A little of the synthesized fungus splashes up on your hand. You think nothing of it. Time for a cup of joe, or a cup of 
Johan, I guess. It's gonna be another all-nighter. You pass by another scientist in the hallway. How's it going, Al? Still burning the midnight oil? You nod politely and head to the kitchen. But something's off. Why was his face rippling? As you finally reach the kitchen, you're sweating. Your breathing is labored. You're lightheaded and disoriented. What is happening to me? Suddenly, the floor becomes the ceiling. You're walking upside down. The people filing in and out of the kitchen around you are changing colors, and there are demons hovering over their heads, staring at you. The air is fuzzy and tastes like pineapple. You're in hell. You're having one hell of a bad trip. But wait, what does that mean? This is 1943. The hardest stuff you've got is sleeping pills and whatever the jazz musicians are smoking. Nothing that makes you feel like this. You're Albert Hoffman, and you accidentally invented LSD. You also inadvertently dosed yourself with three times the amount any human being should take at once. And, little do you know, the United States government is paying attention. Hoffman later said of the experience of unknowingly dosing acid for the first time, I was afraid. I feared I was becoming crazy. I had the idea I was out of my body. I thought I had died. I did not know how I would finish. If you know you will come back from this very strange world, only then you can enjoy it. So imagine, imagine that. I mean, even now, we know what LSD is. We have a vague idea of like the concept of what tripping on LSD is. Like, even though I've never experienced that, I could kind of like from descriptions of things, even the even like the cartoonish like over exaggerated descriptions of it like we we more or less kind of have an idea of what tripping on acid is and even now if i accidentally took that much lsd and just all of a sudden started feeling like that i think i would die i think i would just like i would be so scared that i would just die i would be so freaked out like what is wrong with me what is happening to me let alone when this didn't exist. And it was like the, he literally had no fucking idea what was happening. Well, especially too, cause it's like, you know, he's, he's just like in his lab or whatever, chilling. And then, so he does survive it. He does come back to the earthly coil. And then he's like, fuck, what if this fungus that obviously just made me freak the fuck out and imagine all this stuff is now just eating my brain? Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, he literally invented this and there was really nothing like this that existed other than in like remote villages in far off countries that weren't sharing this information openly. You know, civilizations that utilize like fungus to do rituals and things like that experience sort of like psychedelic, uh, psychedelic experiences. But in the Western world, like there was just nothing like this. And so, yeah, I would just, I, I would be so terrified as in the moment and afterward, just like what happened? Am I like, is this just like in my brain now? Is this just eating my brain? Am I going to feel like this every night forever? And how do you like, how do you like get to the point where you're, you actually understand it was the fungus? That would not be my first inclination. I'd be like, I'm losing my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having a psychic break. I don't know how he made that connection, especially because the way that it happened was that he just like dumped some of the solution in the sink and then like accidentally like touched his mouth. Like, I I don't even know how he made that connection or realized. Life's hard out here when you're a druggist, pharmaceuticalist madman. Yeah. But, but you know, you know what Albert Hoffman did? He didn't freak out. He didn't lose his mind. He didn't die of a heart attack. He didn't cower in fear for three days in the dark in his house waiting for the madness to return. You know what he did? He fucking patented that shit. (laughs) 
on behalf of the company that he worked for. But in the early 1950s, LSD was in short supply, largely being produced and distributed by Sandoz, the Swiss pharmaceutical company where Hoffman worked, for usage in experimental new forms of psychiatry. At some point, the CIA got intelligence that Sandoz would be introducing 100 million doses of LSD into the open market. Wanting to shore up their supply and also scared of Russia getting their hands on any of it, they aggressively pushed to buy all of it up. However, they soon discovered that the military officer in Switzerland that supplied the intelligence had gotten milligrams and kilograms confused, and Sandoz was actually only putting 100 doses on the market. The scale of LSD that the CIA was in need of was simply unheard of. They had to figure out how to make something themselves. Imagine imagine that guy in the CIA. He's like, oops, it's another Richard screw-up. And then everyone's like, oh, 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 Richard. You thought it was a hundred million doses and it was a hundred doses. You, you absolute fool. You little jokester. He's just, he's just Milton from Office Space. Yeah. He's like, I, uh, I was told that, um, I would be able to, uh, torture the captured test subject and try to figure out how to control their mind. And I have Is not this, been given um, that opportunity. Can I, um, can I please have my, um, can I please have my, um, psilocybin back i I just i I don't experience anything unless i have a hundred thousand doses of psilocybin can i please have my psilocybin um, back richard you uh you get the you get you get the measurements wrong buddy there's there's not a hundred thousand doses but i need that hundred thousand doses um i don't experience uh any sort of um sensation in uh in my left foot so i need it to uh learn what a left foot is like you don't feel anything in your left foot richard what is going on right now? Are you okay? Are you, Richard, are you high again? Oh, Richard. Um, yes, I am, mommy. <laughs> Richard. They began sending operatives all over the world, searching for a supply of fungus that could be used to synthesize a drug. Eventually, in the mountains of southern Mexico, they discovered what they were looking for, the magic mushroom. The CIA tricked an amateur mushroom expert, R. Gordon Wasson, into unwittingly venturing into the remote villages of Mexico to find the mushroom. We went into the Mazatec area, far from the highways, remote from Mexico City. There we found that rotten bagasse, as it's called, bagasso, covered with mushrooms. These mushrooms I didn't know, didn't never, had never seen. They were the sacred mushrooms. Wasson would also discover and record the ancient mystical rites of the mushrooms from a local shaman or magical priestess, Maria Sabina. And we were seeing incredible sights. They would go slowly or they would go fast as I ordained. All your senses are rendered acute. We say that you see visions, you see hallucinations, but that doesn't begin to tell the story. The hallucinations are only part of it. You hear sounds, you smell things. The, the, the night was thrilling. What do you think it takes to become a mushroom expert? Well, and he's an amateur mushroom expert too, right? Yeah, he's not like yeah, he's not even like a like an actual uh, botanist or biologist or whatever the fuck an, a mushroom expert would be classified as. He's just like a dude who's like maybe retired and he just travels the world searching for mushrooms. I've made my money in auto repair, and now I'm going to devote the rest of my life to my passions, mushrooms. Like, is he, is he, like, is he passionate about mushrooms? Like, how do you fall into that 
hobby? Like, is he just truly just passionate about mushrooms? One time I was in a restaurant and I said, I'll have the shiitake. And the (laughs) words. And they were like, have the shiitake? What is like, we don't serve just shiitake. That's that's not a meal. I loved saying shiitake mushrooms so much. I've devoted my life to pursuing new and unknown types of mushrooms for the faintest glimmer, the hope on the horizon that I'll one day experience saying a word as joyful as shiitake. So you, you like you had like you enjoyed the novelty of saying shiitake, and then it kind of wore off, and now your whole life is devoted in- to just trying to find another word that's like fun to say. You can mock me now, young man, but when you too experience the joy of the shiitake, you'll think of this moment and weep. So what do you want to order? I'll take a double-double and fries. Okay, sir. Animal style. Okay. Technically, I think In-N-Out started in like 1956, but we'll we'll do it. We can make it happen for you. Once they found out about Wasson's discovery, they deployed CIA chemist Dr. James Moore to accompany him on another expedition to bring back enough of the mushrooms to fill their research needs for a long time to come. Wasson had no idea the journey was CIA funded. What in the world were they looking for with the magic mushrooms? I think the best answer to that is that they were looking for fundamental information on compounds that were would be capable of causing changes in in behavior, changes in mental attitude. Did you ever consider what would have happened if any of these substances were given to say unwitting people? Okay, so this won't mean much to the listener. But Dr. James Moore is just you and me combined. (laughs) (laughs) He's a Frankenstein of the two of us. This is the true Dandrew. Dude, Dr. James Moore looks like if you anamorphed Wee Man and... The giant from Twin Peaks, but stopped in the middle. Yep, middle transition. I mean, he just, he look he looks just, he really does look like a weird homunculus combination of the two of us. He just looks like in pain and uncomfortable just existing. On compounds that were, would be capable of causing changes in, in behavior, change. Like that guy, he's just, he's just like, in he's just like in pain to to exist yeah he's got like a he's got a big forehead horn-rimmed glasses dressed in a gray suit got salt and pepper hair looks like a typical like 1950s guy but the footage that we're watching was released in 1979 so that just shows you like it's kind of a man out of time and we've kind of stepped on it with our fucking around but what his answer to this question is horrifying he's he's basically Mm -hmm. he's a he's one of the chemists for mk ultra and the interviewer is asking him, have you ever thought about the moral ramifications of what would happen if acid was given to people unwittingly? Like, what if it was tested on an unknown, unknowing subject? And he just is just like, I literally never even considered it. Like, it didn't come. And he seems a little, like, uh, caught off guard. Like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, But, like, it's just ridiculous. 
Yeah, and I think I think that that's you know what one of the one of the sociological evolutions that we experience as time goes on. Like one aspect of it is like people becoming more empathetic and thinking about the morality or the ethics of things more. But just, you know, people, at least a certain percentage of them just becoming better, more conscientious people, um, to a, to a larger percentage. Um, but, but one, the other aspect of it, I think, is just simply like a vocabulary for like ethical thinking. Cause I've noticed this a lot with some older things where, like, like you said in this video, it's not even that he's like callous. He just, you can tell that it just never occurred to him. And, you know, uh, you know, now with like, Obviously, things are far from perfect in our world, but, you know, we have things like ethics committees, you know, like people who are devoted to thinking about and theorizing about the ethics of different things, um, different industries and different types of technologies. And every tech company that isn't totally just a piece of shit has like an ethics board and a department devoted to design ethics and all of these things about like we're thinking about like the moral ramifications of what we're doing actively in a in a real time feedback loop. And you look at a lot of these older some of these in some of these stories, you look back at old interviews and, you know, it is it is horrifying. And I'm not I'm not like hand waving it or saying like, oh, they just didn't know or whatever. But it is it, it is really fascinating to see that it's less that they just don't care. I mean, I'm sure it's a lo- they don't care to a certain degree, and there's sure, there's probably tons of people that don't care. But it seems like they almost just just never. They just like yeah, I just didn't think about it. it. Just didn't occur to me. And it's like if you if you watch like one of one of the documentaries about the the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan, Nagasaki, and Hiroshima. Um, there's like there's a there's a similar scene in in one of those documentaries where they interview. The pilot who piloted the plane that dropped the bombs, uh, big boy and little boy. And they were just like, did you like feel bad for doing that? And he was just like, oh, I, no, I just I just kind of I they told me to do it and I did it. And, you know, obviously that's like the whole like I was just following orders thing, which, you know, a lot of Nazis like use that defense during the Nuremberg trials um, after World War Two. And that's, you know, not a valid excuse for anything but what strikes me more is just that like it they seem genuine like it doesn't seem like they're lying it doesn't seem like they're like pretending they seem genuine that they just didn't think of it and that's that's almost scarier to me than like somebody who's like malevolent or like uncaring yeah an orchestra of incompetence careening all of us to our untimely deaths yeah and I think that's and I think that's true. And I think that's a, the reason why there are ethics boards um, in tech um, is because I think that with a lot of academics, like they just they really do just like they're they're focused on this one specific thing, their specific pursuit of what they're trying to accomplish. And they just don't think about like the implications of it to a to a degree that's almost like, how did you not think about that? That seems so obvious, like from the outside in. How did you not think that that would be like a horrible idea? And they're just like, oh, I don't know. I just I just wanted to see if it would work. Did you ever consider what would have happened if any of these substances were given to, say, unwitting people? Oh, I don't remember having considered that specifically. I. What if you. I, I trust perhaps you've thought about it. Uh... Well, I haven't worried about it. Uh, I. You asked, your question again what would I have thought had I known that. The, the, Any of these substances were would have been given to unwitting persons. Uh, you you mean, just can't uh, even 
You can like see his the the the, the rat the mouse in the wheel in his head turning like. Shit! I've just realized I'm the bad guy. How do I get out of this? I guess I must seem very, very cold-blooded about this, but I don't recall ever having been very much preoccupied with that uh, with that issue. I guess I must seem like a lizard-brained asshole, but uh, I have no empathy for my fellow man. I just thought it sounded cool, which is, as we go on, is kind of the theme of this episode. I just thought it sounded cool. The mushrooms were used to develop psilocybin, a hallucinogenic drug that remained exclusive to CIA experimentation for years. So how did the agency get away with spending that many taxpayer dollars on a secretive and completely nebulous experiment? Well, they officially allotted the budget as a, quote, philanthropic grant for medical research, and then hired out personnel through back channels that had no idea they were doing work for the government. When MKUltra was put into action, a man named Sidney Gottlieb was selected to head up the project. Who was he? And how does one get into a position where they are the first that comes to mind when picking a team of secret mind control experts? Howdy, y'all. This is Wild Bill Donovan, founder of the CIA, here with a little public service announcement. Pre-recorded, of course, as y'all know, I died in 1959 and couldn't possibly be around when you're hearing this, living in some kind of nightmare cyborg. <laughs> now, I'm here to tell you that the motion picture Norbit, starring that there Eddie Murphy, is definitely real, and that the MK Ultra program wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> yeah, that's right, folks. Norbit is real, MK Ultra, no biggie. <laughs> y'all have a good one. Maybe go check out that Norbit. Mm-hmm. Is thing wrong? Uh, somebody fry me up some commas. Daddy's hungry. Act 2. Fake it till you make it never had such consequences. Sidney Gottlieb was born August 3rd, 1918 to Hungarian-Jewish immigrant parents Fanny and Louis Gottlieb in the Bronx, New York. In his early childhood, he was a timid boy who suffered from a debilitating stutter that would follow him into adulthood, eventually earning a degree to practice speech therapy after retiring from the CIA. Gottlieb entered into his college years wanting to study chemistry, botany, and agriculture. Going from City College in NYC to Arkansas Tech University and eventually winning an admission into the University of Wisconsin, he graduated magna cum laude in 1940. Throughout his time at U of W, he was mentored by a man named Ira Baldwin, the assistant dean of the College of Agriculture, who promptly recommended him to be admitted into the California Institute of Technology, where he earned a doctorate in biochemistry in June of 1943. His doctoral thesis was titled Studies of Exorbic Acid in Cowpeas. As an adult, he was a gentle, if not austere man. He was denied military service due to a club foot and decided to seek out other ways to help his country through government work. Unlike the majority of his peers in government, he lived a very rural and homegrown lifestyle. He called the cabin in the woods of Virginia his home, lived there with his wife Margaret, who he met in school, and kids, grew his own food, and would often take homemade bread into the office for his co-workers. He was described as a sweetheart by everybody who knew him. He got a job out of college at the Department of Agriculture studying the chemical structure of organic soil. From there, he was promoted to working at the FDA, developing tests to measure the presence of drugs in the human body. Through this job, he became incredibly interested in the effects of drugs on people's brains, and grew bored with his agricultural research. 
1948, he got a job at the National Research Council, where he was first exposed to the burgeoning scientific study of hallucinogenic drugs. Worked briefly at the University of Maryland studying the metabolism of fungi, and then finally on July 13, 1951, started working at the Central Intelligence Agency. But how does a civil agriculturalist who studies soil end up at a government intelligence agency? Well, remember back to his mentor at the University of Wisconsin, Ira Baldwin? He recommended him for the job. Ira Baldwin, Gottlieb's college mentor, was the founder of the Wisconsin Academy Foundation and started teaching at U of W in 1927. He was also one of the world's foremost experts on bacteriology, who, as we will see, was in high demand for reasons he probably never anticipated when he went into this field of study. Born in 1895 to a life of poverty on a 40-acre farm in Indiana, Baldwin saved money to be the first of his family to attend college by selling ducks and husking corn in his youth. He went on to serve in the artillery unit of the Army during World War I before attending Purdue University and eventually gaining his Ph.D. in bacteriology from the University of Wisconsin. One of the papers he wrote was titled The Root Nodule Bacteria of the Leguminosae, which sounds like a Mars Volta album. After getting his Ph.D., he started teaching at U of W as the professor of bacteriology and eventually a chair of the department. But what was shaping up to be a fairly standard issue academic career track would take a sharp left turn in 1942 when he received a call from the office of the President of the United States. A few years into teaching at U of W and right at the close of World War II, Baldwin received a phone call from Colonel William Cabridge, chief of the technical division of the U.S. Army's Chemical Warfare Service. He asked Baldwin to attend a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., but wouldn't give him any more information. Baldwin had no idea what the meeting was about or why he was being called, but he knew that it was something big. The only thing Cabridge would say was that it was a matter of national importance. Baldwin arrived at the meeting to discover something peculiar that would later prove to be an operational advantage for him. Everyone in attendance was a medical bacteriologist, whereas his focus was on plants. As the meeting started, Cavrich addressed the group of scientists. He informed them of a burgeoning new global arms race. After the defeat of the Nazis, every major country in the world was looking for a way to secure their supremacy and gain competitive advantages. Nobody wanted to be caught with their pants down like they had in 1939, least of all the United States. Pearl Harbor could never happen again. However, this arms race didn't involve guns, tanks, or fighter jets, but rather germs. Russia, China, and the U.S. were racing to become the first superpower to crack the code of biological warfare. The problem was that none of the government scientists could figure out one key aspect of the process. Producing massive quantities of pathogenic microorganisms in a lab at the scale and potency that would be necessary for warfare, while not risking the health or safety of the producers or nearby areas. The room full of medical bacteriologists thought it was impossible. They felt that the pathogens either couldn't be produced in the quantities the army wanted, or they couldn't be cultured safely for the surrounding environment. They couldn't have it both ways. This was Baldwin's moment to shine. He didn't study bacteriology from a medical standpoint, and so containment or environmental safety weren't baked into his discipline. Whereas the medical guys have been trained to be overly cautious in the way they developed in culture. He also had experience studying the fermentation process in breweries, which had no medical applications. It was this slight shift in perspective that gave Baldwin the confidence to say that it could be done, and it could be done effectively. The way he figured it, the methods for culturing pathogens was the same whether it was a one-ounce test tube or a 10,000-gallon tank. The conditions just had to be replicated at the necessary scale for the job. After the meeting, Cavridge thanked the scientists and sent them on their way. Baldwin left D.C., chalking up the whole experience as a slightly odd but novel story he'd tell his grandchildren someday. The time their straight-laced, plant-loving grandpa got to answer some questions for the president. A few weeks later, on the strength of his response at the meeting in D.C., Colonel Cavridge called Baldwin again. The U.S. government was developing a new arm for the study and development of biological weapons, and he wanted Ira to head it up. 
Baldwin had a moral dilemma and a big decision to make. A deeply religious farm boy from Indiana who grew up Methodist and still preached at local churches in Madison, Wisconsin from time to time, he was now being asked to develop weapons meant to kill foreign enemies. A full two years before J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the fathers of the atomic bomb, would remark about his role in their development, Now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. This plant professor was being asked to pioneer something even more sinister. At any rate, Baldwin had to decide if his morals could allow for indirect murder, something a plant bacteria professor usually doesn't have to grapple with. However, despite the unprecedented nature of the decision, Baldwin later recalled that it only took him 24 hours to accept the offer. Looking back on what had caused such a rapid shift in his worldview, he said of the situation, You start out with the idea in war of killing people, and that, to me, is the immoral part of it. It doesn't make much difference how you kill them. So, you know, our, our boy Ira Baldwin, and as we get into this episode, as we get further into MK Ultra story and talk about Sidney Gottlieb, who we briefly touched on and we're going to go much more into... Um, the thing that I find most fascinating, most fascinating, and this almost kind of even plays into what we were talking about before with the whole thing about like academics, um, just like being fascinated by pursuing scientific discoveries and developments of technology and just kind of not thinking about the moral or ethical ramifications of things. It almost kind of exactly plays into that. But the most bizarre thing about this entire story is that these just fucking nerds who are just like, um, yes, uh, the, I'm, I'm, I'm studying the culture of chickpeas in a, uh, frozen climate. And they've like devoted their entire lives to attaining these PhDs in studying plants and agriculture. And somehow they end up just like being given like carte blanche to just like kidnap people and like try to turn them into super soldiers. Like somehow these are the guys that like inherited the shady conspiratorial underbelly of the American government. And it's not just what it's, it's not just one guy. It's not just like, Oh, this weird story about this one guy who somehow backed up into a career in mind control. It's like multiple guys who were just these like boring botanist guys. And then they just like somehow got involved in this. MK Ultra, more like MK Schlubtra. Baldwin was now the scientific director of the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories and immediately had carte blanche to set up the program the way he saw fit. On December 24th- Before we keep going, before we keep going, just briefly, how much money do you think they threw at him? Because like, that's the real thing, right? Is it's like, this is against his morals. Yeah, he gets to do research, but it's for weapons. The real reason he's doing this is money, right? Oh, yeah. They, they for sure offered him a ton of money. Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, because he's, he's a professor at a at a college. He has a PhD. He's been doing this for a while. He's like the foremost expert on this topic in the country, if not the world. But he's just like he's just like teaching class at a, at a Wisconsin university, which it's a very it's a it's a very prestigious university. I'm not like downplaying it, but I'm sure he wasn't making much money even for the time and even for the area. So, yeah, the you know, we, we from an outside perspective, we're looking at this and we're like, he's like, yeah, I just, you know. I just kind of thought about it for a second and I was like, you know what? We're already going into war. We're already killing people. That's already, that's already happening and it's wrong, but it's happening anyway. So I guess it doesn't really matter how it happens. But in reality, he was like, how many zeros? Yeah. Yeah. Behold, I am become death destroyer of bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, because, you know, it's it's interesting because it, it, the way that the story kind of approaches it, it's like these guys, it presents it like these guys, like just for, for reasons apropos of nothing, just like threw themselves headlong into these pursuits. Like this guy, Ira Baldwin, who spent his entire life just studying plants and like how bacteria grows. He just kind of took a sharp left turn and was like, I'm just going to become obsessed with making fucking neurotoxins that can murder people. And maybe that's maybe that's what happened. Maybe he just got so fascinated by the challenge of it that he just became obsessed with this thing that is a, a huge shift from what he was doing for the first half of his life. Or maybe, just maybe, the government in this era where they're just like, freaking out about like foreign powers gaining an advantage was just like throwing money at people and being like figure out how to make us good fuck moral uh moral high ground here's enough money to buy a farm yep yeah i'm I'm sure that was a big factor he was now the scientific director of the u.s army biological warfare laboratories and immediately had carte blanche to set up the program the way he saw fit on december 21st 1942 months after he had gone to dc for the meeting of the bacteriologists he arrived at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, the epicenter of all biological warfare study in the U.S. He had to select a site for his group's research and development, a place big enough to house the biological experiments safely that would be close enough to Washington for them to sign off on it, without the brass constantly breathing down his neck. Baldwin settled on Dietrich Field, an abandoned 92-acre airfield outside Frederick, Maryland, about 50 miles northwest of Washington, that had been previously used by the Maryland National Guard. The site was officially redubbed Camp Dietrich, and Baldwin moved in. Next, he had to choose his staff. Largely pulling from the U of W faculty, Baldwin started bringing his selections into the fold, and much to his satisfaction, his picks didn't need to be vetted or approved by the military bosses in charge of the project. What he wanted, he got. And while most of the staff working out of Camp Dietrich were military personnel or scientists given officer status, Baldwin made the choice to remain a civilian. Though he had served in the First World War, he skipped part two and decided that as long as he stayed out of uniform, there was never anybody he'd have to say yes sir to. He could accomplish much more if he remained in the private sector. So he found himself in a position of tremendous power. A civilian with zero military status schmoozing with high-ranking government officials and giving orders to low-level army officers. This would eventually create friction. Shortly after establishing the Camp Dietrich grounds, Baldwin's promise of being able to produce massive scales of pathogens in a safe and controlled way was put to the test. The U.S. government had received an order from Britain to produce seven pounds of dried botulinum, also known as the most deadly human toxin in existence. The training wheels were definitely off, and Caverich's gamble on a plant expert from rural Indiana was either going to be the breakthrough success he was counting on, or else a lot of people were going to die. Baldwin's crew erected a massive tar paper-covered shack dubbed Black Mariah that they could grow the toxins inside of without releasing them into the surrounding environment. Using massive 100-gallon reactor tanks connected by pipes, the bacteria in the shack cultured over the course of two days in order to fill the seven-pound order. And to the delight and relief of everyone involved, nobody died. Baldwin's vision had come to fruition. After this initial success, Camp Dietrich grew rapidly, eventually housing 245 structures, a hospital, firehouse, theater, library, and thousands of on-site personnel. And though they ramped up production of weaponized toxins, Baldwin was most proud of the site's safety standard. In the time that Baldwin ran Camp Dietrich, four men died, which he saw as a success and proof that he had been mostly right in his assurances to the military. However, something had definitely changed in Baldwin since his days as a soft-spoken college professor and part-time preacher. He had become notorious for his tedious adherence to strict safety protocols. Many people at the facility believing that they were too 
too thorough and should be loosened up for the sake of time and efficiency. Many of the military staff argued that they were all aware of the risks of this kind of work and that they should all deal with those risks fully in exchange for getting things done quicker. In response, Baldwin said this. I'm not really worried about whether you get killed or not. If you do, we'll feel sorry about it and we'll take a couple of hours off and we'll go to the funeral and we'll come home and go to work again. But if we get organisms out into the air and Farmer Jones's cows over here get anthrax and they die, we'll have a congressional investigation that will probably shut down the whole post. So I really am not as much interested in you as I am in protecting the community. By late 1944, Baldwin was butting heads more frequently with the military brass. They resented his civilian status and thought things were moving much too slowly. In particular, they wanted Baldwin to increase the site's anthrax production. But he resisted largely because he disagreed with the usage of anthrax over other toxins for warfare due to its long shelf life. The toxin could remain dormant in areas for decades, making its usage incredibly dangerous for anybody entering the vicinity where it had been deployed long after it had already fulfilled its wartime purpose. It was unruly. However, another bacteriologist, Lord Trevor Stamp of Britain, disagreed and championed the use of anthrax in several papers. And because he had high-level friends in both the British and U.S. military, his research and opinions were often favored over Baldwin's. Baldwin had gotten into a situation he never wanted to be in, subservient to the government and forced to do things he didn't want to do. In the spring of 1945, Baldwin resigned as the head of Biological Warfare Laboratories and returned to UFW where he became the dean of its graduate school. But he stayed involved with the U.S. government's biological weapons program, serving as chairman to the Committee on Biological Warfare. In 1948, amidst a growing frenzy to expand and innovate the country's biological weapons research, he circulated a report within the government recommending that they experiment with releasing pathogens into the water supplies and subway systems of unsuspecting American cities in order to test their efficacy at spreading in different environmental conditions. Many of these tests would end up happening. By the early 1950s, Baldwin was still teaching at U of W and still had a lot of clout in the world of biological weapons research in the government. He also remained close with his former U of W student and protege, Sidney Gottlieb. And so, when he was asked about anybody he might know that would head up a new CIA program exploring the science of enemy mind control, he knew exactly who to recommend for the job. And just like it had happened to him years prior, Gottlieb, another plant scientist, would be asked to take human life into his hands and run a program that would end up killing many people. Gottlieb received a call from the CIA on Baldwin's referral, and he started there on July 13, 1951. Hello, everyone. My name is Milton Kermit Ultra, and I think you've maybe heard some things about my program. Well, they're all true, even the weird ones. Honestly, especially the weird ones. Sorry you had to find out like this. When I find out troubling information, I find solace in the comedic motion pictures of Mr. Eddie Murphy, like, for instance, Norbit. Have a lovely day. Act 3, and this is only what we know. The early 50s were far enough away from the victory of World War II, and the U.S. had moved on to its next phase of conflict on the world stage, the inception of the Cold War era. This period would last well into the 1980s and serve as background radiation for American life throughout that time. Gone was the confident, unified front of patriotism and the rallying against a common enemy of the 1940s. In came three decades of fear and uncertainty. In addition to the newly tendered existence of weapons of mass destruction and biological warfare, 
there was an even bigger threat in the eyes of America, something the country had overlooked in order to push through the war against the Nazis, but they believe was now threatening to destroy the delicate balance of power across the earth and send the civilized world into chaos. Communism. Throughout the 1950s, the U.S. government would launch a worldwide campaign to stamp out the communist threat, taking sides in foreign conflicts, funding military coups to overthrow communist-labeled leaders and replace them with more manageable dictatorships, and directly contributing to or being complicit in mass genocides. The entire country was worked up into a frenzy over the Great Red Scare. And it's interesting how this is all, this all, a bunch of our episodes we've done have sort of a converge here in the, in the, the, the communist junction where, you know, the Chiquita banana episode, the, um, act of killing episode, um, the early parts of the QAnon episode, like all of these episodes are sort of like touched by this converging moment in the 1940s and 50s where the, the, the global kayfabe of the Western world decided that communism was just like the eternal boogeyman of existence and as a direct result of that of crafting that narrative that communism was this like evil that permeated the globe that needed to be stamped out just all of these horrible things just reverberated out from that moment and unlike the rosie the riveter let's all pitch in collective harmony during world war ii these communist fears were also directed internally people were spurred on by figures like the u.s senator joseph mccarthy who launched a massive campaign in 1950 alleging that communist spies had infiltrated every level of the American government, as well as the film industry and private sector. They became terrified that they were living next door to monsters. They started spying on each other. Nobody felt like they knew the truth anymore, and they all wanted assurances that there was some way to weed out these charlatans, that in a world full of deceptions, there was some way to force the truth to come out. They were primed to be receptive to concepts like mind control and truth serum. They craved it. Enter Sidney Gottlieb and Project Bluebird. Now, before we dive into Project Bluebird, the earliest origins of the MK Ultra program, it's important to understand that, like every other aspect of MK Ultra, we only know small bits and pieces about the project. Everything that is publicly known about all of this work the CIA was doing in the 50s and 60s came from a massive declassification of 20,000 agency documents in 1975 that confirmed the existence of MKUltra and other CIA mind control experiments. However, this was only a small percentage of the documents that had at one point existed on the subject. The rest were destroyed by Gottlieb shortly before he retired in 1973. The 20,000 documents released to the public were only salvaged because they had been accidentally filed as financial records at some point. What we know about these projects is likely only the tip of the iceberg of what truly went on during those years. Project Bluebird started before Gottlieb had even joined the CIA, and its original run was fairly standard, ethically shady, top-secret government fare. By the early 1950s, the CIA was seriously contemplating the practical applications of hypnosis within intelligence gathering, a concept that, up until the ultra-paranoid post-war era of the mid-to-late 40s, would have been completely alien to a government agency. But the rumor mill around secret Nazi experimentation conducted within the walls of concentration camps, what the agency operatives had witnessed at the Soviet trial of Cardinal Joseph Menzenti, plus a healthy dose of Red Scare fear-mongering, created the perfect recipe for the kind of open-mindedness amongst the suits that left a door open for a more metaphysical approach. Project Bluebird was initially put into operation in 1950 by the chief of security at the CIA, Sheffield Edwards, and was initially strictly a security operation. In fact, the entire purpose of the project was more about prevention than it was about actually trying to extract information. The CIA figured if they wanted to have a good defense from the same kind of interrogation techniques that might be deployed on American agents, 
they needed to understand how to successfully conduct the techniques themselves. However, as the project got underway, it became clear that the lines between a need to understand the techniques for defense purposes and a unique fascination with mastering the techniques for offensive measures was incredibly blurred for Sheffield and the other men who ran the program. Memos from this period already seemed to be delighting in the exploratory nature of playing around with human minds and discovering what ways they could be poked and prodded. The program was all about experimenting with different forms of interrogation to extract information from enemies, conducted on overseas POWs, unsuspecting therapy patients, or even members from within government agencies. At one point in the early stages of the project, Sheffield reached out to members of the Manhattan Project, another top-secret government operation experimenting with the development of nuclear weapons, looking for willing test subjects for their research. According to declassified CIA documents, 10 or more scientists and engineers from the Manhattan Project had top-secret interrogation experiments performed on them. The reason why the CIA had been interested in testing these men they reckoned that their own work was so secretive that extracting information from them would be the ultimate test of any interrogation method. And they'd also be more likely to keep their mouths shut about Bluebird. In July of 1950, Bluebird's first experiment involved a team of CIA operatives, consisting of a psychiatrist, a polygraph expert trained in hypnosis, and a technician traveling to Japan to run tests on a series of suspected double agents. They weren't allowed to tell anybody, including the U.S. military officials they were connecting with in Japan, the truth about their mission. Instead, they claimed to be conducting intensive polygraph testing on the subjects. During these trials, they dosed the subjects with a cocktail of sodium amytal, a depressant, as well as benzedrine and picrotoxin, two powerful stimulants. The goal was to disorient the subjects and induce amnesia. The agents conducting the trials later marked their experiment as a success, although official CIA papers are incredibly vague on what, if any, results they were able to achieve. Many more tests were conducted throughout 1950. A few of the interrogation techniques involved dosing test subjects with drugs such as LSD to get them into a more impressionable state. Incidentally, many of these early experiments were conducted by licensed psychiatrists and psychologists who were hired by the CIA, and many of them, including Dr. Timothy Leary, would end up trying the drug for themselves and go on to start the counterculture psychedelic drug movement of the 1960s and 70s. The key goal of the initial project were laid out in official CIA documents in the form of a series of questions. A. Can accurate information be obtained from willing or unwilling individuals? B. Can agency personnel or persons of interest to this agency be conditioned to prevent any outside power from obtaining information from them by any known means? C. Can we obtain control of future activities, physical or mental, of any given individual, willing or unwilling, by application of SI, sleep-induced, and H, hypnosis, techniques? Can we prevent any outside power by gaining control of future activities, physical or mental, of agency personnel by any known means? So before we move on, as we're starting to finally get into the early stages of MK Ultra, um, when when did you first learn about MK Ultra? What was your kind of introduction to it? Were you interested in MK Ultra as a subject? Uh, I guess what I guess you know how how much of about this did you know previous to this episode? Um, I think I first found out about MK Ultra in high school. You know, it's one of the standard. When you're interested in conspiracy things, you learn about Area 51 and MK Ultra and Bigfoot and alien UFO sightings. And so I think I probably learned about it then. Um, it was a little less interesting to me at that point due to the fact that it was less of an actual conspiracy and more just real. Um, uh, but I feel like it's, you know, uh, conspiracy adjacent. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I knew some stuff about it, uh, but most of the acid and like, you know, Age of Aquarius, Flower Power, 60s psychedelia stuff doesn't interest me all of that much. Um, so it kind of was just a cursory knowledge of like, oh yeah, this, we performed experiments on people and it was really fucked up. That's kind of my general understanding of it. Um, and, uh, spoiler alert, we explored, we performed experiments on people and it was really fucked up, <laughs> like real fucked up. It's, it's definitely more fucked up than I thought it was, but it is in the same ballpark of like the events that I had understood previously. Yeah, I think, I think, um, definitely in researching the story kind of a similar experience to you of like i you know i knew about it it's kind of just one of those things that people who are into like conspiracy theories and like weird shady like government conspiracy stuff talk about like this is in the same vein of like talking about sort of like jfk conspiracy type stuff but the the one kind of um the the, the one um the, the one aspect of this that was always kind of like different was like but this one is true or like this one is like this one is factual. Like this isn't just a conspiracy theory or like a rumor or whatever. Like we know this is true. And I think I, I, gener I gen generally knew that. But in researching, at least in my experience, and as we're going to get on with with the episode, researching and learning more about it was like this just like wading into the quicksand of like how crazy this shit is. Like this isn't just like this is this is true but it's like it's not it's not like one of those things where like the truth is like less interesting than like the lie kind of thing like kind of like what was talked about a lot with QAnon um i kind of feel like the truth is like fucking crazy in a way that's like like i like like the intro said like this just sounds like made up alex jones bullshit almost to the point where it serves as like almost an antidote to the discussions in the QAnon episodes where it's like, if, you know, if this shit is true and we only know about it because they accidentally filed some papers in the wrong drawer, what the fuck else is going on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all know that American uh, democracy and safety has come at an extreme price and the American empire has committed horrible acts of atrocities and war crimes that will never be uh, pr prosecuted due to the fact that there's never been a war crimes tribunal against a uh, United Nations Security Council nation. Um, and there probably never will be unless maybe something happens with this whole Ukraine war with Russia. Maybe. But even then, I I'm very circumspect that that'll actually happen. Um, but it's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the thing about the story is it's so flashy on the surface that it kind of drowns out how horrible and horrifying it is, you know? Because the surface, like the top line log line pitch of this is like, we gave acid to a bunch of people unbeknownst to them and like ostensibly tortured them for like years. And that sounds bad. But when you learn what that actually means, it's just unfathomable. Yeah. And I, and I feel like even like when it is kind of like in when it has been portrayed in pop culture, like when they show these types of scenes in movies and things like that, where they'll kind of like show a scene of like government shady government people in the 1950s like performing experiments on people it's always like just shown as like they're just like got guys in a room and they've just like give them lsd and then they're just kind of like tripping out and, that, and that's such a like sugar-coated version of what this actually was as the project continued on though tensions began to arise the scientific intelligence arm of the cia had become increasingly insistent on being involved in the tests Believing that the security officials didn't have the right training to conduct the experiments, 
or accurately collect the data for analysis. A bureaucratic coup was staged within the agency, and the science division took over Project Bluebird. The project was then reclaimed by the security division shortly afterwards, with security officials stating that it had failed to produce one new usable paper, suggestion, drug, instrument, or name of an individual under the management of the scientists. At the point that Gottlieb was hired at the agency, the project was in shambles, mismanaged, poorly organized, and not delivering any kind of meaningful results. Hell, it ended up directly causing the cultural movement that the CIA itself would waste the following two decades trying to stamp out. That is a whole other level of failure. When one of your greatest enemies publicly thanks you for all that you've done to help his cause, as Leary did to the CIA, you know you've royally screwed up. Gottlieb was given his first task by the higher-ups, fix Project Bluebird, and he couldn't have been handed a better blank canvas. Already deeply fascinated by experimenting with the effects of hallucinogens from his work at the FDA and NRC, he saw an opportunity to transform Project Bluebird into something much more than a study into interrogation tactics. He wanted to probe the human mind and discover ways to use drugs to change people, make them subservient, hypnotize them, build the perfect mechanism for smoking out the nation's enemies by crushing the part of their mind that allowed them to lie. Gottlieb immediately began work restructuring Project Bluebird. It started to incorporate more drug dosing, and with a new impassioned leader, it became focused. Soon, the project had outgrown its original purpose. Gottlieb no longer cared about simple interrogation. He wanted to expand the project into mind control, the bending of free will, and the fantastical concept of programming captured enemies into becoming sleeper assassins. A new initiative, titled Project Artichoke, was spun off from Project Bluebird to reflect this widening of scope. To be honest, from the available D-class of documents, Project Artichoke might have been a bit better organized than Project Bluebird, but it seems to have largely been more of a free-form thought experiment than an effective scientific research project with actionable results. The first several documents on the project largely chronicle Gottlieb's attempt to find a reliable person to teach his men hypnosis. Entire sections detailing instances where the agency was swindled by con artists or stood up by frauds. There was even an entire memo from July 9th of 1951, where Gottlieb says he's convinced he's finally found an authentic hypnotist to teach him the skill. His evidence that the hypnotist is actually legit is that the man has induced several women into having sexual relations with him. So this fucking nerd was just like calling up hypnotists and he was just like, teach my men to hypnotize. And these fucking like hucksters were just like, sure thing. Uh, $4,000. And he's like, all right, here you go, $4,000. And they were like, thanks, buddy boy. See you later, chump. And they just like ran away. And then there was one dude and he was just like, yo, I fucked a lot of gir- chicks. With- <laughs> he said it like that too, right? A lot of w- girl chicks. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I had, I had to edit that at the end because, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the company I'm in. I don't know what you're cool with. They were definitely adult women. But yeah, and I hypnotized him. And he was like, whoa, you you fucked that many chicks with hypnosis? You like, fucked 100%. like two chicks? And you're sure they weren't just like women who like actually just were interested in you and then like put up with the hypnotist stuff because they thought it was like your kink or whatever, right? Nope. Full hypnosis. Those women did not like me at all. And, and, and Sidney Gottlieb was just like, wow, you're hired. Like he's just like a little kid who's just like... Like this whole thing, like it gets, it gets way darker pretty fast. 
But in these early stages, it really just feels like a bunch of dudes just like messing around and like just like doing things that they think are cool. Like it, it's just it just reads like little kids who are just like playing around and experimenting with shit. In a January 1952 memo, the true goal of Project Artichoke was outlined in the form of a question. Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? It also kind of reminds me of you remember whenever there was like that that moment in sort of like in the middle of 2020 um, where there was some press conference where Donald Trump was like, they were talking about like curing the the virus or like the ways to get rid of it and things like that. And in the middle of the press conference, he was like, what if, uh, what if we just there, put is, bleach in it? <laughs> no, that was, well, that was another one. But there was a, there was one where he was just like, what if there was a way? To, Cause they were talking about like UV light and how like light can like kill the virus and stuff like that. And he was like, what if we could like put light inside of people? Like what it, could we just like, if there was a way we could get the light into us? And he was, and he just asked that question in the middle of this meeting, and everyone was just like, "Uh, yeah, maybe." I mean, interesting thought. And then they just kind of moved on. That's what this reminds me of. This whole thing. It's like Sidney Gottlieb just like sitting. I could, I just imagine him sitting in the same kind of like press conference, and he's like, "Could we like turn people into zombies?" <laughs> so I saw this really interesting movie. Any of you, uh, Night of Living Dead? You seen it? Anybody? No? What if we just did that to people? What if we just made them zombies? And that, no? that that's literally what it is though, because Sidney Gottlieb, he's not a a doctor. He's hasn't he's he's not a biologist. He's not anything to do with people. He is literally a plant scientist who studies like bacterial growth. He has no expertise or knowledge in like human physiology or what or any of this stuff. Like he, he shouldn't even he has no business anywhere near this topic. And there's no scientific basis for any of this stuff. Like there's no scientific basis or proof or evidence that you can like control people's minds. There's no like discovery that was made. Like we discovered this way of hacking people's brains. Let's like develop that more and like look further into it. There's nothing like that. So it's literally just this guy who is like has nothing to do with this field at all. Who's just like for some reason been made the boss of this, and it's literally just him being like, "Can we like control people like robots?" Y'all, y'all seen the Manchurian Candidate? Literally, that's literally. I mean, that movie came out in the '60s, but literally, that is what it is. But like Sinatra, am I right? Like old blue eyes, you know, you know. I did it my way. What if they did it our way? Yeah, and and all of this, but then the other people were just like, let's let's give it a shot. Here's a hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money now. That doesn't sound like a lot now, but like that's a lot of money, right? In this time period, I did it mind way. But Gottlieb's new project had an issue with gathering the necessary amount of bodies to conduct the experiment. And no, it wasn't test subjects they had a shortage of. One memo from the Times stated that many of their candidates were rejecting invitations into the program because their ethics might be such that they might not care to cooperate in certain more revolutionary phases of our project. Whenever Gottlieb came upon a candidate he felt was viable, the reasoning was clear. In another memo, an approved candidate for Project Artichoke was a doctor who was described as having ethics that were such that he would be completely cooperative in any phase of our program, regardless of how revolutionary it might be. 
So take everything that we just talked about, everything that we were just saying just sec- just a second ago about how Sidney Gottlieb like had no idea what he was doing. He was not like a brain doctor or a psychiatrist or anything. And they were just like fucking riffing with this shit. Put on top of that, that they were so hard. Pro- I mean, let me let me just let me rephrase this. Let me ask you, Dave, does this sound like a good idea? So you, you have a project, you have a program where you are like experimenting with people's minds and like trying to figure out ways to control people's minds and taking like test subjects that may or may not be willing or knowledgeable of what you're doing to them. But you're so hard pressed to find people to conduct the experiments. There's just a there's a shortage of people that will be willing to do this because they're like, this is wrong. And so you're so hard pressed that you're desperate to get people to participate in the program. And so the people you select to run this program, to be the team conducting these experiments on human brains are the top 1% of people who were just like, fuck it. I'll do whatever you say. Like, I I don't give a shit. Tell me to like stick a broom into a dog's butt. Like, I'll do it. I don't care. Does that sound like a good thing to you? That's going to be like turn out well. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. This program was exclusively composed of the it, it was exclusively the least ethical people that they could find. In the beginning of the human experiments carried out under artichoke, subjects were dosed with mind-altering drugs such as cocaine, marijuana, heroin, peyote, and mescaline. Hypnosis and sleep induction were pushed on people against their will, and they were subjected to cycles of forced drug addiction and extreme drug withdrawal meant to break down the walls of their consciousness so that messages and ideas could be implanted, and other similar psychedelic drugs. Throughout those trials, subjects began to experience amnesia, forgetfulness, and an inability to remember the very experiments they were being subjected to. Psychedelics became the focus of Artichoke's experiments. As his tenure wore on, Gottlieb was gaining clout at the agency. He had friends in high places, including CIA director Alan Doles, who was buddies with Ira Baldwin, and so he consolidated more power and freedom. He used this power to expand Artichoke further and conduct whatever shady experiments he wanted as long as it was done in the name of crushing communism. At this point, Project Artichoke was nearly its own separate agency operating from within the CIA, a huge team spanning multiple continents experimenting on foreign POWs, sex workers, vagrants, and other less protected people. The subjects were being covertly dosed with a cocktail of cocaine, heroin, mescaline, and LSD and the agency was seeing actual results from the experiments. Due to the interest in LSD for these experiments, the government made a play at producing its own supply of similar hallucinogenic drugs. Eventually, Gottlieb tried acid himself and realized just how much potential it had for opening up people's minds and letting others inside. This wasn't just a way to keep people from lying or controlling them. The entire human brain could be torn down, stripped of all its impurities, and rebuilt from the ground up to turn a person into the perfect human being. But even Project Artichoke wasn't large enough for Gottlieb's aspirations. He felt the limits of the program's original goals holding him back, not allowing him to go as far into his experimental study of the effects of LSD on the human brain. Gottlieb became frustrated with the progress of his first pet project and decided something needed to change. He needed more resources, more expertise, and more access to the mind-altering substances that were going to make the experiments successful. Gottlieb used his connection with Ira Baldwin to reach out to the Special Operations Division of Camp Dietrich. He wanted to know what 
what their capabilities were for producing these drugs at a massive scale in the same way that they could develop bioweapons. Seemingly satisfied with their answer, Gottlieb went to his higher-ups and convinced them to completely seize control of Camp Dietrich and all of its facilities and infrastructure. Gottlieb now had everything he needed to evolve Project Artichoke into something more. He was ready for the next phase in his labyrinthian descent into the world of experimental mind control. Gottlieb and the CIA's darkest, most secretive project were only just getting started. I'm Mike Miller. You might know me from such works as The Compendium of Deep Cuts, Canon, and Lore, Deep Cuts Episodes 100 and 102, and of course my podcast, Deeper Cuts. I just wanted to hijack your feed for a moment to remind you that the movie Norbit isn't real. It was never made, the whole thing is just a CIA psyop to recapture escaped MK Ultra subjects. Thought it might be relevant given today's topic. Thanks. And remember, kids, a bad devoted eye fisher is an anagram. Act 4. Believe it or not, this is where it gets horrifying. It was 1953, and Sidney Gottlieb was frustrated. A few years earlier, he had been hired at the CIA as their chief of the chemical division of the technical service staff, and put in charge of a top-secret program called Project Bluebird. Gottlieb and his men tried using hallucinogenic drugs to brainwash unsuspecting test subjects and make them tell the truth. Eventually, the program got bigger and was renamed Project Artichoke, but was always about national security. Gottlieb had bigger plans. He wanted to use psychedelic drugs to control people. We're talking Manchurian candidate type stuff. And he didn't give a single magic mushroom about security. He wanted to create a sandbox for his mind control research without any moral or legal boundaries. More importantly, there were other programs at the CIA tinkering with mind control and years worth of their own research, and he wanted it all. Luckily, he had friends in high places. Alan Dules, Gottlieb's friend and the one who hired him, had just been promoted to director of the entire agency. Gottlieb went to him with a proposition. They would call Project Artichoke a wash and launch a bigger, even more top-secret program that would absorb all the agency's mind control initiatives. And he was going to be the head of it, and it was going to have a cool name. Dole's approved, and Project MK Ultra was put into effect on April 13, 1953. The name combines the two-character digraph MK, which symbolically represents the Technical Service Staff Division of the CIA, along with the name of the project's intelligence classification, Level Ultra, the highest rank of secrecy in the agency. Can you believe that Level Ultra is a real thing? I love it. It just so- it sounds so fake. Yeah, that shit is that shit does not sound real, but I fucking love it. It sounds it sounds it sounds like a, a kid. It sounds like that that show uh, codename kids ne- uh, codename kids, kids next door. Yeah, totally. Like it just sounds like a made up spy thing. It sounds like it sounds like they went into a room to pitch a Project Artichoke TV show and the development executive was like, yeah, this all sounds great, but we we can't call a show Project Artichoke. What about MK Ultra? And the, and the, the 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 guys who are pitching are just like, yeah, sure, whatever you say. Yeah, what does it mean? I don't know. It means MK Ultra. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. And yet it's a real thing. Yeah, I love it. So first things first, Gottlieb had dozens of CIA researchers and scientists at his disposal, but he wanted more. MKUltra needed multiple experiments running simultaneously if they wanted to cover enough ground to beat the Russians. And so they needed a hire from outside the agency. But here was the problem. How do you hire civilian researchers from outside the government to work on a top secret mind control program 
without them knowing that they're working for the government on a top-secret mind control program? How do you experiment on a massive pool of test subjects without word getting out? Easy. You just don't tell anybody. MKUltra launched hundreds of sub-projects, agents all across the country finding ways to dose people with psychedelic drugs and observe their behavior. G-Men walked into bars and slipped strangers' drugs in their drinks, followed them home, and monitored the results. Hired CIA goons formed relationships with people, lured them into rooms, slipped them drugs, and documented the results. Sex workers, homeless people, and drug addicts were all fair game to be experimented on without their consent. They were powerless. It was all pretty bad. In other sub-projects, MKUltra agents hired out hospitals and universities all over the world to carry out experiments on their patients and students. Some of them knew they were doing the work for the government, and some of them didn't. Nobody knew it was about mind control. They enlisted researchers, scientists, physicians, psychologists, and former agents of the Office of Strategic Services, a World War II-era predecessor to the CIA. Through these covert hirings, the CIA launched many sub-projects, and they dumped some serious cash into them. The estimated budget of one sub-project alone was $39,500 or $405,000 in today's money. One of the worst was Subproject 68, headed up by a man named Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron. But in order to tell his story, we need to head into the Great White North because the most grisly chapter of the MK Ultra saga is a Canadian collab? Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron was born December 24th, 1901 in Scotland as the son of a Presbyterian minister. But the call of the ministry didn't interest Cameron, and he jumped lanes onto the path of medicine. An MB in psychological medicine from the University of Glasgow in 1924, a doctorate in podiatric medicine from the University of London in 1925, and then his MD in 1936. He spent a majority of the 20s and 30s traveling the world, taking residencies at John Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, Burglesey at the University of Zurich, Provincial Mental Hospital in Manitoba, Canada, and finally the Albany Medical College. That podiatry degree went to waste. He firmly established himself in the field of mental health and psychiatry, and he was a total rock star in the field. He developed a psychiatry program at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, became the president of the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychopathological Association, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, and the World Psychiatric Association, and then became the director of the Allen Memorial Institute Psychiatric Hospital in Montreal, Canada. He was like the Thanos of the mental health world collecting the infinity stones of psychiatric medicine legitimacy. But also like Thanos, his goals in psychiatric medicine proved to be troubling and his methods less than perfect. During the Nuremberg trials, a series of military tribunals held by allied forces to prosecute Nazi war criminals in 1946, Cameron was one of only three doctors invited to do a psychiatric evaluation of Nazi party leader Rudolf Hess. He was, after all, the president of every psychiatric organization in the world, apparently. It's like getting the Michael Jordan of diagnosing mental illness to come to your pickup game. The event ended disastrously for Cameron. During the evaluation, he diagnosed Hess with amnesia and hysteria. Then, a bomb dropped. He admitted that he was faking his amnesia. Cameron was fooled by a ruse, and worse, his diagnosis could have helped a Nazi get more leniency. To be fair, the other two doctors were also fooled, so maybe Hess was just one hell of an actor. Either way, the Nuremberg trials shattered Cameron's credibility. Then, Gottlieb and MKUltra knocked at his door. Perfect timing. Cameron joined MKUltra shortly after its inception. He was hired by Lieutenant Colonel James L. Monroe, working undercover as the head of the CIA front organization for human ecology. The Shell organization funneled over $69,000, or $600,000 today, into Cameron's pocket during this time on the payroll, and nobody knows if he fully knew he was working for the U.S. government or not to this day. The stated purpose of Cameron's research for the CIA was supposed to be studying ways to reprogram the psyche to cure schizophrenia, but like every other person involved in MKUltra and the mind control experiments that came before it, Cameron was obviously interested in something more. His reputation damaged by the Nuremberg trials 
He wanted to secure a legacy as the Sigmund Freud of his time, and he'd do anything to achieve that, and the CIA was going to pay for it. So how did he do it? A few years prior, Cameron had established an open-door policy at the Institute. People could walk in off the street and be admitted for issues like anxiety or depression. It was revolutionary for its time in the world of mental health and psychiatry. It was also a trap. Cameron took unsuspecting patients coming into the hospital and turned them into unwitting MKUltra test subjects. Cameron dosed the patients with large amounts of LSD, subjected them to relentless electroshock therapy at voltages up to 40 times the normal amount, and forced them to listen to recorded messages over and over for 16 hours at a time. And then there were the sleep rooms, where Cameron put patients in drug-induced comas for upwards of 60 days straight. Can you imagine, like, I, I, I almost can't even, like, bring myself to be like, can you imagine being the person in, in that situation? Because it's just such a horrible monstrosity that's been done to you that you I don't know if it's processable by the person but it's almost like can you imagine being like related to somebody that this happened to because the the actual like pain infliction of this is just I, weeks at a time I just can't even it's it's incomprehensible to me like I can't yeah and first of all i mean they they were they were in these sleep rooms for weeks at a time but like these patients were just in these in this hospital for months and you know so, you know somebody getting a family member getting kidnapped or dying in war or something like that is horrible enough but this is almost kind of like more horrifying because they from for all they know, for all they knew, their family member was just like going to the doctor for like a checkup, essentially. Like they're like, I'm going to go. This place has this open door policy. I've been feeling some anxiety and I just need to like go talk to a, a psychiatrist. And this this hospital has this awesome policy where you can just walk in like you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to like reach out and find uh, some kind of specialist and you don't have to do any of that stuff. You just walk into the hospital and just you can talk to somebody So from, the, from their family members perspective, their mom or their dad or whatever was just like going to like see a doctor for a couple hours and then they just like disappeared for months. And as we'll as we'll find out, you know, when they came back, they were kind of never quite the same like that. That idea of just being plucked like just this person just like being plucked out of your life randomly and then just put back and your life is just fundamentally changed forever. People in there were like babies. They cried and they were very disoriented. And we were very afraid of the sleep room. We used to walk very carefully against the side of the corridor that was opposite the sleep room with our backs to the wall when we'd go by. Cameron used this combined sleep electroshock treatment on patients as long as 30 days. One patient he kept asleep for 65 days. Cameron retired and his successor, Dr. Robert Cleghorn, ordered a follow-up study on the patients treated with Cameron's depatterning method. It showed that it was no more beneficial in its result than the use of more conservative methods. But the follow-up study showed that 60% of those who had been depatterned still had amnesia for periods of anywhere from six months to 10 years. That's quite a memory loss, isn't it? That is a memory loss, indeed it is. It's a more, I think, more than desirable. In retrospect, does Dr. Cameron's experimentation and his treatment appear harsh? Uh, I would say yes. I mean, uh, this forceful type of approach uh, that I was des describing to you uh, is definitely, it can be said that it's harsh. 
I wouldn't call. So I have a couple, a couple things to say here. So the the first thing is um, going back to what we were talking about, what we've talked about a few times in this episode. It's it's fascinating and horrifying. So basically, what we were just hearing was these the you know this stuff that we're talking about all happened in the 1950s, and this was a a, a news packet this this um investigation into um the, the goings on of this hospital in, uh by this news organization and they went and interviewed all these people and the two people that were talking this was done in the 1970s and they were just like the current administration of this hospital the the the, the hospital where this stuff was done by uh, dr cameron and it was like the it was like the just the head of the hospital and then like the guy who was like the lead physician or whatever or the lead psychiatrist and it's like they the hospital has like denounced the things that he has done and they don't practice they don't do these things anymore that they've these these methods are not um practice at this hospital anymore obviously but at the same time like these these people they're not they're not being like Oh, it was fu- it was horrible what he did. Yeah, they're like, just like they're, they're just like yeah. I, I just it probably wasn't the best idea. Yeah, we uh, maybe if we maybe if we would have had a couple more meetings, maybe we would have like maybe decided not to. But like I mean, whatever. Yeah, they're not it's fine. They're not like the the atrocities that were conducted in this ho- hospital are beyond horrifying, and we will spend the rest of our lives trying to like make some kind of amends for them and providing like amazing medical services for our patients. To somehow try to like pay off the 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 moral debt that we've gained just by being associated with this monster. Yeah, I'd, I'd say if I was really thinking about it, I would say like it wasn't great. Like I, I, w- I wouldn't have done it I w- personally. I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, I mean, like if it was just up to me, yeah, I probably would have probably would have given it a pass. But you know what? It wasn't. So we did it. And and the other the other thing I wanted to talk about at this point and the, kind of what I wanted to. Sh- to ask you or talk about with you is so we've we've so far we've gone through this story and we've talked about this college professor and you know agricultural scientist who kind of out of nowhere just takes on this job developing like essentially just like weapons of mass destruction like neurotoxins at at massive quantities meant to like murder like armies basically um and then this other agricultural scientist who studies plants and moss and algae, who is given this job to just like start like experimenting with interrogation tactics. And he takes it upon himself to completely shift and morph this program into an attempt at creating mind controlled super soldiers and figure out how to like hack people's minds. And then you have this doctor who he's just like he's he's a psychiatrist and he's devoted to studying just the human mind and how it works and you know treating depression and anxiety and given an opportunity he just becomes like he becomes a fucking super villain like he just he just starts like capturing people in his dungeon and torturing them and i guess like what do you what do you think like is that just like absolute power corrupting absolutely like these people were just given a blank check of power and it just immediately made them go insane. Like, what do you, what do you think is happening here? I mean, I think part of it is because it's this like weird academic you're you're dealing with people who've been in a system where they're not ever confronting real world consequences. They're always 
thinking about things in the abstract. They're ex- they're performing these experiments in labs or, you know, they're they're kind of they're not anyone who's ever had real weight behind the decisions. It was like we're doing an experiment. <laughs> does it exceed? Does it succeed? Does it fail? Shit, it failed. Right. Let's try something again. But it's not like we're going to try this experiment. And if it fails, 15 people die, you know? So it's almost kind of like I don't understand it at all, but I but I can kind of see a path from that type of person with that kind of academic or, you know, research paper brain not taking into account the realities of the human toll that all of these experiments and these situations are going to unfurl the ripple effect of the damage. Like you saw that guy. He was like Dr. Marcus Jones or whatever the hell his name was. Malcolm Jones, whatever, where he was just like literally sideswiped by the idea that someone would unwillingly dose another person with the these mind altering drugs, you know, like like he was just like, what? Why would somebody do that? So it's in some ways it's like the system playing people's worst influences against each other or worst impulses against each other. And like everybody kind of pushing blame on everybody else. And then it gets to the one guy who's like, fuck it, I'll do it. Yeah. And it's like they're they're so these people, the 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 pattern or the the unifying factor of all of these people is that they're all people that are just so in the weeds of like just incrementally pursuing scientific discovery and experimentation and, you know, putting out, putting out, um, putting out tests and recording results that they just have become disconnected from the real world effects of things. And everything is kind of like hypothetical to them. And when that, when you've got, when you've gotten so lost in the woods of that, you can get to a point where you just literally, you're, you're, you're just, you're, you, you, you almost become like a sociopath, like, like, like mathematically you become a sociopath because you just like, you just are not thinking about the human toll of anything. You're just thinking of everything as an experiment. Yeah. You're not, you're not, looking at the people as people you're looking at them as like ones and zeros on a on a checklist yeah which is interesting because going back to this conversation that is literally the reason why uh ethical design was created and why uh organizations that have to do with scientific pursuit and technological pursuit have ethics boards and ethics departments it's literally for that reason um you can you can read and uh people talking about how these ethical these ethics departments were developed because you know people in tech realized that these engineers um in the fields of um ux for apps and things that we use the way that we you know use user interfaces for the way that things work and people developing machine learning algorithms and things like that they're just so like lost in figuring out how to make these things the best that they could possibly be that they just they just don't think about how they could affect humanity and so here's a question uh do you think that this is slightly off topic but also still on topic do you think the main character in Scanners, Cameron Vale, is named after this Cameron? Yeah, I honestly like 100%. That's really a weird thing because Cameron Vale in the movie, if it's been if it's been a minute since you've seen Scanners, cuz yeah, cuz Scanners is like it's just like a a fucking science fiction MK Ultra yeah fantasy movie. Yeah, basically it's it's about like what if NK Ultra succeeded and 
it produced a breed of psychic people. And so the Canadian government then went around and dosed a bunch of pregnant mothers with an psilocybin-esque compound in against their will in order to create these psychics, codenamed scanners. And now we're 20 years or 30 years into that program running and a black ops kind of military industrial complex private army company called Comsec is trying to use the scanners as a weapon. And we follow the main doctor who's played by, I am not a uh, number, I am a free man, Patrick McGowan himself, which is awesome. He's the best part of the movie. And we follow a new recruit into Comsec's organization who supposedly is the most powerful scanner they've found in a long time. This guy who is a former homeless person named Cameron Vale, he gets trained up. And then the doctor who's leading the program informs him there's a guy out there collecting scanners, making an army, and he's going to do bad stuff. Overthrow the government, overthrow Comsec. He's going to sow chaos with all of these scanners that he's collecting. So you, Cameron Vale, you got to go out there and stop him secret agent style with your psychic powers. Okay, I'm going to do it. So it's basically like propaganda pro-fascist state narrative where it's like this guy gets sucked up into this shadowy governmental conspiracy where he's on the side of the oppressors and the the inner quotes villain of the story is depicted as a, you know, unstable maniac who's actually like a freedom fighter. And then there's a twist in that paradigm gets revealed and it's a little bit like ooh, was comsec the villain the whole time and it's like yeah yeah they were the villain the whole time that was not subtle like yeah and it's just weird if he's not named after this cameron that's a huge coincidence if he is named after this coincidence or this this cameron that's really gross yeah i mean like, I, think it's it was, just, I, I think he was 100 percent named after this dr cameron really weird it's really weird both ways like you're glorifying this fucking monster who did all these this who tortured people did all this horrible shit as like an escapist i don't know it's weird that's it's real weird anyway we don't have to keep talking about scanners but i've been thinking about it on and off through this whole thing i love i love those scanners movies all three of them and the two spinoff scanners cop movies real into them uh and i if you couldn't tell i just recently rewatched scanners one (laughs) no i thought I thought you just had that burned into your memory. Cameron believed that he could rewrite people's psyches and erase mental illnesses. In reality, the patients left Allen Memorial broken. They had amnesia, forgetting their families and often their own identities. They forgot basic motor functions like walking and talking. The experiments left them irreparably damaged, taking years to recover, if at all. Linda McDonald was one of these patients. She checked herself into Allen Memorial looking for a cure for her postpartum depression. Cameron diagnosed her as a schizophrenic and stuck her in the sleep room. She was subjected to over a hundred sessions of electroshock therapy. In her 86 days in the sleep room, she went from being able to tell doctors her name to having her brain completely wiped. I had no identity, I had no memory, I'd never existed in the world before. Like a baby, just like a baby that has to be toilet trained. She eventually went home, her depression gone, and her entire previous life gone with it. And this is, this is one of the twins, and that was in 62 before I went to the Allen. And this is the same one, I think. I just look at the pictures, and I know who that is, who they are, but I don't remember them as my children at all. Hmm. I mean, I know that they came from my body, um, but 
there's no, that's all. I don't know, and that's because I was told that. Hmm. So these are my children. Robert Logie. That's so just fucking sad. It's it's horrible. Horrible. Like, postpartum, postpartum depression is no small thing. It is, you know, it's a real issue that um, mothers experience, and, you know, they they seek therapy for it, or uh, famously, they take medications for it, and then fucking Tom Cruise freaks out and goes on a tirade and yells at Matt Lauer and calls him glib. Um, famously, that, that that whole thing was inspired by Brooke Shields talking about taking postpartum depression medications. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's no, it's not, I'm not saying it's like no big deal or whatever, but like I said, whenever, whenever mothers experience postpartum depression, they, they go to a, a therapist, they get some medication sometimes if that's the route that they want to take. And it's, you know, it's a fairly buttoned up medical issue. You know, it's something, it's something that we, we have, you, you can find help for and you can kind of, um, you know, sort yourself out relatively easily. And so she just, she goes in for this issue that, as I said, is, is not no big deal, but it is something that we have ready help for in today's society and we can kind of you know get it taken care of and just because she goes into this hospital with this issue she is just like subjected to months of torture and she leaves the hospital and she just never she doesn't remember her own children and she never does like she has to she has to be she has to be rebuilt from the ground up as a human being and her she doesn't remember her family. She has to be like reintroduced to her family and just, you know, get to know them all over again. And these are kids like she went there for postpartum depression. So she had a baby that she just didn't remember. Like it's just it, it's fucking horrifying. It's it's just it's unfathomable how terrible this is. And there was dozens of people that this happened to in this hospital. There was dozens of people who had this exact same story that they just went in. They were gone for like six months. They came out and they just like were a different person. Didn't remember anybody had to be like retrained as a person. And, you know, you just have to pick up the pieces of that and move on with your life. It's so it's just fucking sad. And there were many other victims like her in the years after the experiments. Many former patients of Cameron's came forward to tell their story. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the hospital. Documentaries were made about the tests and their victims. This all happened after Cameron's death in 1967. He never faced any consequences for his involvement in MKUltra. And then the drug began to take hold very rapidly because it was an IV injection. And um, things became very furry and uh, very frightening and uh, had a lot of sensations that it's very difficult to recall. Nobody explained it to me. Nobody ever asked me if I was willing to do it or anything. He had this feeling that he would be able to get through the resistance of illness and, and, and to reach uh, deep changes very quickly. Did he? I don't think that uh, when you look at that in retrospect, the hopes that he had, had been, has, have been in any way Fulfilled. But Cameron would plunge on. The next step was what he called psychic driving. This involved almost endless tape-recorded messages and more drugs for the patient. Cameron wrote that this was the way to make direct control changes in personality. I thought this was the coldest and most impersonal treatment that anybody could give to anybody in the world. 
And I became more and more despondent and more and more angry. I just became so despondent that I thought I can't, I can't live like this any longer. And I thought I would just go out and throw myself underneath the cars on McGregor. I stood on the curb of that street and, and I stood there and I thought, okay, go, okay, go. And then I thought, what if you're not killed? What if you're just maimed? What if you don't die and you live and you can't even talk anymore? And I couldn't do it. The most severe technique Cameron used was depatterning. And the, the, the most supremely fucked up thing of all is that he just, nothing ever happened to him. He just like went on with his life and then he died eventually and never, never. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just like, that's that thing. That's the thing that we talked about in another episode. I forget what it was, but the thing about the lovely bones and how the Stanley Tucci character and how he like abducts and murders little girls and he doesn't get caught. And then at the end, he like falls off a cliff or something like that. And it's like, you know, poetic justice of the universe or whatever. It's like, fuck that. Like this dude, this dude tortured people, disrupted families, fundamentally changed the lives of countless people for the worse and then like okay yeah he died in a hiking accident or whatever but like that has that that's not good enough like that's not that has nothing to do with anything he did that's just a whole separate thing the following is a message from the central intelligence agency hello once again i'm deputy director gus funderson of the cia here to remind you that the motion picture Norbit is very, totally real, and you should watch it. Right now, especially if you or anyone you know thinks they can hear thoughts or lift a bus. You should definitely see Norbit as soon as possible because it's definitely real. It has to be, right? I, I'm a CIA guy, couldn't possibly lie to you. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> watch Norbit, please. <laughs> Act 5. So a G-man and a psychopath walk into an LSD orgy. Back in the good old US of A, as Gottlieb really started to ramp up the program, things were careening out of control. There were over 150 documented sub-projects. Some of them, like Sub-Project 27, were just standard research on LSD dosing. Others were more avant-garde. Sub-Project 15 involved a magician named John Mulholland, recruited by the CIA to write a manual on manipulation and sleight-of-hand technique called the official CIA manual of trickery and deception. It taught CIA operatives how to slip drugs into people's drinks, seduce women, and smuggle evidence out of enemy territory. The book was thought to be destroyed in 1973, but later resurfaced and was published. You can buy it right now on Amazon. Seriously, go look it up. So they, they were just like, they were just like throwing shit out. They were just like, all right, all right, what, what do we got? What do we got? Like there was like a writer's room and there's like, there's like a, there's a dude like, Sidney Gottlieb is sitting there like throwing a football up in the air and catching it. And then there's somebody like throwing like crumpled up balls of paper into one of those little tiny basketball hoops. All right. What if we uh, what if we get one of those guys on the street that does those like that weird game with the little like shells and there's like a coin underneath the shells. What if we get one of those guys? See if he's a psychic. All right. I love it. I love it. I love get the guy, get the shells. Get the ball under the shell. Ostensibly, we're gonna have to guess which shell it's under before we get it. But what what do we, what do we do with him? What like what 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 does he do? I don't know. Maybe he like uh, maybe he like uh, 
He like has shells and then he puts like drugs in people's drinks or something. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I love I love the shells. So he so he puts the drugs in the drinks. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe we get like what about like Harry Houdini impersonators that can like, you know, like jump out of handcuffs and shit. What if we do that? What if we just give a bunch of LSD to an elephant? I'm fully erect right now. <laughs> Doubling back a little, during the development of Gottlieb's many mind control initiatives, he needed more high-level help. Luckily, he knew the matchmaker of the shady government experiments world. Gottlieb called up Ira Baldwin, and he had just the guy. Baldwin fixed up MK Ultra with Camp Dietrich chemist Frank Olson. So who was he? Born July 17th of 1910 in Hurley, Wisconsin, Olson decided to study bacteriology at, yep, you guessed it, the choice of every discerning bacteria scientist with aspirations to mess around in people's brains, the University of Wisconsin. Baldwin served as his thesis advisor, and he earned his PhD. A few years later, while serving in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps, Baldwin gave him the call and recruited him for his Camp Dietrich biological weapons project. After Baldwin's exit, the Army Chemical Corps assumed control of Camp Dietrich. Olson stayed on and helped them establish the biological warfare laboratories. He was eventually discharged from the army in 1944, but stayed on at Dietrich under civilian contract. While working for Biological Warfare Laboratories, Olson teamed up with ex-Nazi scientists smuggled into the country through Operation Paperclip and participated in Operation Sea Spray, where the bacteria Serratia marcescens was deliberately released into the atmosphere in San Francisco and its surrounding cities to test its effectiveness at spreading. So, on the on the advice of Ira Baldwin a few years prior, Ira Baldwin, this uh, Wisconsin preacher slash college professor, he was like, oh. I remember him. Yep. Like, uh, no, 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 no. I remember him. No, yeah, I know. I, I get it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, but like. You, you have a you have a speech impediment and you like to show it off a lot. I mean, that's. No I remember him. No, yeah. I, yeah. I, I love it. I love the way. I love the way you pronounce that. I remember him. But he's like, he's like, you you know what, you know what you guys should do? You should just like, don't tell anybody. And you should just like release a neurotoxin. Like, what do you mean release? A ne- like, just, just release it. Just put it out there. Go to, go to one of those gay cities and just like, just let it, let it rip. Let it ride. Like literally just an old man just being like, put a, put a toxin out there. Just to, just to, just to, you know, say this back to you to make sure I'm getting it. You're saying we should release a biological chemical? What the fuck type of weapon is that? Into we should a bacterium, a bacterium that could fucking kill people over a major metropolitan city. Release it. <laughs> the listener won't see, but you just had your face pushed up into the mic, and you you looked like you were kissing the mic i mean yep and that's what he did and you know what they fucking listened to him and they were just like sounds good and so they were just like yeah so you know uh we're not quite sure on this whole releasing bacteria that could potentially kill a bunch of people over a major metropolitan city idea that you came up with but it's a thursday we don't really have that much else going on so we're gonna give it a shot we're gonna see how it goes Yep. So, so uh, our our boy, our new boy Frank Olson, who's uh, now becoming incorporated in the story, and you know we'll find out what what happens with him. But uh, he was part of this project, and he helped develop develop the the process and aided in the distribution of this. And it was called Operation Sea Spray, and they released this bacterium into the atmosphere in San Francisco without telling anybody, and nobody knew about it until like the mid seventies. Terrifying 
terrifying. In the spring of 1949, with fears of Soviet progress and a biological warfare echoing off of every surface within Camp Dietrich, the U.S. Army formed the Special Operations Division. The SOD was an even more secretive operation within Camp Dietrich, working on covert ways of dispersing chemical weapons. Within a year, Olson was named the head of the division. The, the, the most shocking thing about this is just that, like, all of these horrible top-secret government organizations dedicated to, like, chemical warfare and torturing people they were not headed by the stereotypical like like you know how in you know how in mars attacks which is like a which is like a spoof of like an uh, 50s b movie they have the the scientist character played by um pierce brosnan who's like advocating for making contact with the aliens and talking with them and communicating with them and then there's the stereotypical military um, general who's just like, we got to go in there and blast them. Fuck this nerd or whatever. D- these these organizations, they were not headed by the military guy. They were headed by the Pierce Brosnan guy. But they were like they were just as ethically fucked up and terrifying as the stereotype of like the, you know, the the, the overzealous general or whatever. Yeah. Who's just like just wants to destroy things and doesn't care about diplomacy or whatever. Like you think about these organizations and the horrible things that they did and you're like, oh, what what like fucking meathead, like screaming stereotype of a warmonger was like making these decisions. And it was like, no, these these organizations were run by just like algae nerds. Like what? Like what the fuck? In the beginning, Olson was assigned to the committee of Project Artichoke. His dual duties in the CIA and as the chief of the SOD kept him busy. He specialized in the development of airborne biological germs and James Bond-esque gadgets like cigarette lighters, medical inhalers, and even shaving cream designed to disperse toxins like anthrax. That's one close shave. This guy was Q. Just think about think about that. You know, we we saw Q in the, in those movies, and he was just the guy that was like, "Here's these gadgets." or whatever but imagine the war crimes that q was had actually committed in his in his career (laughs) hey 007 today we're gonna give you a watch that spews chemical warfare compounds we're gonna give you a toothpick that if you hand it to someone on their left hand they'll die of brain hemorrhaging and we'll give you these nice shoes if you give the shoes to anyone under six two their eyes will explode and here's a watch, a gold-plated watch, and if you press this button, a genocide happens in South America. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because it's really not that far off. Yep. So put yourself in Olsen's shoes at this point. You're a soft-spoken bacteriologist who, like many of your peers, has inexplicably slipped into a career as a biological weapons and human mind control tester. You're performing dangerous experiments on unwilling subjects, overseeing projects designed to kill countless people and poisoning the air supply of entire cities. And you're maybe not quite as much of a sociopath as everybody else around you. What do you do? In 1953, right as Project Artichoke transitioned into MKUltra, Olsen had enough. He was tired and stressed. He was developing painful ulcers. He was done with it all. He stepped down from his position at the SOD and stopped overseeing mind control experiments at the CIA. But you know what they say, you're never quite done with mind control. Olsen stayed on in an advisory position at Camp Dietrich, consulting on animal testing experiments and monitoring torture sessions of, quote, expendable human subjects in other countries. So, so, God, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. So we have all these fucking lizard brain maniacs. We're just playing God with human life. And the one guy who's like, he's the most ethical out of all of them. And he's the one that's like, I 
I'm having ulcers, guys. Like, this is my guilt is eating away at me. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep participating in these horrible acts. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not right. And my, my body knows it's not right. It won't let me do it. It's killing me. It's eating me from the inside. But I still will torture like black guys, though. Like, <laughs> like, like Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is this, where, where's this one from? Uh, Nicaragua? Yeah, fuck it. Like after all of that, he developed painful ulcers. He's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna quit. I'm not gonna like fully quit. Daddy's gotta eat. I'll still hang around. Daddy's gotta eat. I gotta, I gotta make use of my skills. This dude's, this dude's where? Taiwan? Water boredom. It was at this point that Gottlieb invited him to a weekend getaway at a lake house in Maryland. A chance to unwind. Maybe give a few of those ulcers a rest. A car winds its way through the serpentine back roads of the Maryland countryside on the evening of November 18th, 1953. Its headlights finally resting on a remote lake house surrounded on all sides by tall trees. It rolls to a stop over the gravel driveway outside of the house, its heavy doors creaking outward into the crisp night air. Inside the car are four Central Intelligence Agency operatives, Sidney Gottlieb, his deputy, Robert Lashbrook, Vincent Ruitt, head of the Special Operations Division, and Frank Olson. Are they there conducting top-secret CIA business? Not quite. They're joining several employees of nearby Camp Dietrich, an Army research base for the weekend retreat at Deep Creek Lake. Two days of shop talk, food, and drinking meant to help the men blow off steam after weeks of demanding government work. Later that night, they gather inside and enjoy a glass of wine together. What none of them notice, however, is that Gottlieb and Lashbrook, who are pouring the drinks, serve everyone from one bottle of wine and themselves from a different, identical bottle. What was in the first bottle? Gottlieb and Robert Lashbrook spiked the wine with LSD and observed the behavior of the men in attendance, including Olsen. The weekend ended and everyone went back to their lives. That was weird. Oh well, guess I've done acid now. Time to go back to my life. And it was that way for everyone, except Frank Olsen. After the trip, Frank Olsen became depressed. He was suddenly unsatisfied with his life. Everything felt pointless and wrong. He started to have reservations about his job and decided to leave the CIA entirely. Maybe he'd take up painting or something else where he could use his hands, but not play God? Olson's friends and colleagues started having concerns about his health. What happened to him over the weekend? He confided this in Vincent Ruitt, who was also at the lake house that weekend, getting freaky and riding the LSD wave along with everybody else. Ruitt convinced him to see a psychologist in New York City before making any hasty decisions. Olson agreed. The two men headed to New York City, where Olson had a therapy session with Harold Abramson. The only problem? Abramson was a CIA-affiliated doctor. The week afterwards, Olson headed back to NYC for another session with Abramson. This time, he was accompanied by Robert Lashbrook. The two men decided to stay the night in Manhattan and got a hotel for the evening. That night, only 10 days after the weekend getaway at the lake house, Frank Olson fell from a window on the 10th floor of the hotel and landed on the sidewalk below around 2 a.m. on November 28, 1953. His body was recovered by the CIA and his family was never allowed to see it. They conducted an autopsy and released their findings. He died by suicide. He had a closed casket funeral. The cuts all over his body were too disturbing for public viewing. But if you thought that the death of an operative as a result of one of the experiments might stall MKUltra, you'd be wrong. The project became bigger from here and only got weirder. There was Operation Midnight Climax, a sub-project that has exactly the right title once you learn what it is. 
In cities like San Francisco and New York, CIA-funded safe houses were built full of rooms with one-way mirrors leading to secret surveillance areas. The CIA paid sex workers to bring men back to these rooms and covertly dose them with LSD so that they could be observed. So you know, so you know the the movie The Bad Night at the uh, Bad Night at the El Royale. This is just what that was, except with less hunks. Oh yeah, these I'm sure these dudes were like fucking pasty, like meat sweat maniacs. Well, Bad Night or Bad Times at El Royale is that what it's called? Whatever it's called, that movie's yeah. got a hunky cast. Yep, John Hamm, Chris Hemsworth. The 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 wor- <laughs> Believe me, we're getting a, a lot of worth out of that, Chris. Yep. Um, other Drew guys. Pierce. The writer director, he's a he's a hunk. Yep. Dave Baker has a cameo in it. Yeah, that's you just, true. You can see your 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 profile like Hitchcock in the in like a shadow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The man in charge of this operation was George Hunter White, a former OSS agent and current Boston narcotics officer. And according to his colleagues, a bit of a character. He took joy in the work, at times personally participating in luring men back to the safe houses and drugging them for observation. Years later, after the conclusion of Project MK Ultra, White wrote a letter to Gottlieb thanking him for the opportunity. I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? They were all Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Like, the fucking unreal. Yeah. They were just... And not even, but it's, it's even weirder than that, though, because it's not just they were all Hannibal Lecter. It's they were Hannibal Lecter's that were given tacit approval by the government. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were just like, it's a means to an end. Like Gottlieb is just like this, this guy is like a horrible crooked cop who, you know, amongst his other fellow cops, they're just like, this guy is a fucking maniac. And he just like beats the shit. Like he'll just like get somebody into custody and like beat them near to death. And he's like, he's insane. He's unstable. And Sidley Gottlieb is just like, I can use that. Like I need that kind of chaos energy for this weird project we got to do. So they're just weaponizing sociopaths. Then there was the tragic case of Tusco the elephant. Yep. That thing I said earlier was not a joke. On August 3rd, 1962, the psychiatrist Lewis Jolly West and some of his colleagues from the university of Oklahoma in connection with Gottlieb and MK ultra dosed the massive circus pachyderm with 297 milligrams of LSD, 3,000 times the recommended human dosage. And unfortunately, Tusco collapsed within five minutes and died. Poor Tusco. It's it's not funny, but it's just so needless and fucking weird. And just like some guys being like, what if we did this? That it just like I it I it makes me laugh like it's just like I'm like it makes me just burst into this like this like nervous like what the fuck is going on laughter and it's all made worse because his name is Tusco yeah it's just like they were they were there was just there was literally no utility to any of this it was literally just guys being like what if we did this it's like you know what it is is it's it's one really long damaging sociopath fueled game of yes and it's like all these guys are like frat bros who are just like yeah yeah, yeah. wouldn't it be hilarious if we like fried people's brains to the point where they couldn't remember their own children (laughs) yeah dude let's do it dude i 
I don't even think that's a joke. I think that is literally what it was. I mean, you bro, saw I mean, what we do. What, what would happen, dude, if we like fucking gave an elephant LSD, bro? I don't know, bro. Let's fucking figure it out, bro. Let's do it. It's interesting because we ha- we're we're a little removed from these people. You know, we just are able to read about them in historical documents and kind of speculate on like what was truly going on in their minds. But going back to it, I briefly mentioned it much earlier in the episode, but like I feel like a good indication of like what the dynamic of this was is the the act of killing because you know you're you, looking at that documentary um the we did an episode about it and it was it's a documentary about these people in Indonesia in the 1960s who basically just committed a genocide and just murdered thousands of people that were just like um erroneously accused of being communists and like communism was tantamount to like a literal evil that needed to be exterminated um in, in this in in this culture at this time in Indonesia in the 1960s um, that was basically like directly bankrolled by the United States government. And the documentary chronicles these uh, a handful of these people that committed this genocide. Um, basically, these dudes that were just like they were just like dudes that were hired by the government to murder people. And they were called gangsters. Um, and it it follows this one particular guy and like a few of his friends that all uh, he he was involved in this genocide and murdered people. And then he has like a couple of guys that are like his almost like his henchmen or his lackeys or whatever. And when you watch that, you really get a sense of like what this must have been. Like it, it, it seems like such a, it, it seems so accurate to these type of people because that guy, I forget his name. Maybe you remember, um, the, just the main, the main guy. Um, he, he's just like a, he's a flim flam artist. Like he's just this, he's a blowhard. He's just this dude who like doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And he's just like goes around talking about what a badass he is. And he just talks himself up and talk and it has and says all these things that are just like horrific. And and he romanticizes this genocide that he was involved in and like brags about it. And then he has like these guys that are just like his hype men who are just like they're like validating it. And it's what you're talking about is that yes ending where it's just like this fucking idiot who's just going around bragging about shit and just like doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he has these other guys who are just like validating it and being like, yeah, man, that was fucking badass. Like, I, you're you're right. It's that's great. You're 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 the best, man. You're the fucking best. And then he's like, yeah, I am the best. You're right. I am the fucking best. So when I murdered all those people, that was a great thing to do. And they're like, yeah, it totally was, bro. It totally was. You are a rock star. You keep doing you and I love it. And that must have been what was happening with this. Like, I feel like those guys are just these guys. They got to be like separated by a vast ocean, speaking a different language in a completely different area of the world. They're the same guys. The dude, the main guy, the main gangster in Act of Killing is this dude uh, named Anwar Congo. Yeah, that's that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the moving the, if you have not seen the movie, please, please go watch Act of Killing. It is, I've never seen a movie like it. It's not a documentary. It's not fiction. It's something more than both of those. Yeah. It's like, it's like, what if, what if the reenactments from Unsolved Mysteries were done by the actual murderers and, and then there was like interviews with the murderers in between them instead of just. But the, but the interviews with the murderers would only be about the reenactments and why they made the directorial choices they were. And it would be presented like. And inside the actor's studio. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unlike anything 
I've seen. And um, it, it is a it is the deepest level of terrifying and it is the uh, one of the best films I've ever seen. Um, and um, we did we did a two parter on the act of killing and the look of silence, the film's sequel uh, made by Joshua Oppenheimer. And uh, yeah, if, you, if that sounds really interesting, you should you should go check out act of killing. You'll be a different person after you watch it. Yeah. And I think I think um, amongst many other things, one thing that that movie really encapsulates and illuminates is the ways in which not to dismiss it whatsoever, but the ways in which like normal people who aren't necessarily monsters aren't necessarily like bad people can just be like whipped up into like this weird psychological circle jerk of just like kind of like daring each other to go further and further and validating each other. And just like this back and forth, like tennis game of like, keep going, keep going, keep going, calling each other's bluffs and like validating each other's like bullshit kayfabe nonsense to the point where you get pushed into doing truly horrible acts. And I think that really just applies to everything I know about Sidney Gottlieb and these other people involved in in MK Ultra, it, it really, you know, watching that movie, I think, if anything, I feel like one of the big things about watching that movie is, like I said, you get it, you get a great sense for the fact that, like, not everything is this black and white, like, binary of, like, there's good people and then there's, like, bad people. There's, like, people who can easily be pushed to doing horrible things without kind of realizing what that what they did until it's too late. Um, And I think that I, I think that's really what's kind of happening here where. You have all these like scientists and people who are just like so hyper fixated on the experimentation process and discovering results and pushing into new territories that they just kind of like they don't see the forest for the trees. And before they realize it, they've like fucking tortured a generation. Or how about the fact that Gottlieb and his team may have actually cracked the code of mind control, but on dogs. CIA documents uncovered in 2018 show that an MK Ultra experiment injecting brain implants into dogs in the late 1950s successfully allowed researchers to control them remotely. The study, however, was closed for lack of practical application because the government didn't have much use for on-command butt-sniffing. Then, in 1963, after a decade of the program, things began to unravel. John Vance, a member of the CIA Inspector General staff, basically the government-appointed watchdogs put in place to make sure nobody goes mad with power, discovered MK Ultra, and wrote a scathing report. In his words, the program was distasteful and unethical, but provided almost no benefit to the agency. He was not a fan. He was also not wrong. In 10 years, the program had not discovered an even remotely effective method of mind control. Sure, unwitting test subjects hopped up on acid were a little more chatty, but decades of experiments only solidified that true mind control was just a work of science fiction. Also, there was no actual tangible data on the experiments. By nature of how secretive it was, very little paperwork was kept on the results of the various MK Ultra tests. How would we even recreate or apply research when nobody wrote it down? Most importantly, if the American public ever got wind of this program, it would be an apocalyptic PR disaster. One that a U.S. government embroiled in a fight for the hearts and minds of its citizens in the middle of a perceived all-out attack by the scourge of communism and a burgeoning counterculture anti-war movement simply couldn't afford. MK Ultra's budget got slashed. Sub-projects were shuttered left and right. All the weekend wine and LSD parties were canceled. George Hunter White's army of sex worker spies were cut loose. The drug supply dried up. MK Ultra was a shell of its former self. 
Eventually, the program went softly into that good night. New projects spun up in its place, MK Search and MK Often. But the salad days of pursuing mind control and brainwashed super soldiers for the CIA and Gottlieb were over. It was a good run, or not. It was actually all pretty bad. Everything went quiet until the day that Richard Nixon ironically helped bring everything to light. It was 1972, and the Watergate break-in had just occurred. Then-director of the CIA, Richard Helms, refused to use his position to cover for Nixon in the ensuing scandal and made a powerful enemy. When Nixon was re-elected, he fired Helms. On his way out, Helms had all the files on MKUltra destroyed. It was a mad dash to cover up one of the agency's darkest chapters. But as we know, he was not successful because of a simple clerical error. 20,000 of the documents were accidentally filed as financial papers and survived the purge. Gottlieb retired, calling the entire project useless, but still received the CIA's Distinguished Intelligence Medal and a particularly dark example of failing upward. Which, yeah, I can't even, I can't even stress that enough. Like, it's put aside the fact that what he did was horrible. What he did was useless and completely just incompetent, and he never did anything of value. And yet he got a medal. Way to go, buddy! On December 22nd, 1974, after Nixon's resignation, Seymour Hersh, an investigative journalist, reported in the New York Times that there was evidence the CIA had been running illegal operations in America and had files on thousands of U.S. citizens. The article sent shockwaves through the country, already grappling with a growing distrust of the government after a very public Watergate scandal. People were out for blood, and the CIA just couldn't sweep this stuff under the rug anymore. John Marks, a former State Department employee, spent a majority of the early 70s filing thousands of Freedom of Information Act requests for CIA documents to uncover even more information about MKUltra and other illegal CIA operations. He eventually put it all into his 1979 book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, The CIA and Mind Control. Have you have you by any chance read that book? I, I would highly recommend for anyone to check that book out. You can you can get a copy of it just like for free as like a PDF or whatever. If you just search it, I don't remember where I saw it, where I got it, but I pretty easily found a copy of it. Um, and it's like I don't remember how long it was. It's like it's you know it's a it's a book. It's it's maybe like a couple hundred pages long or something like that. Um, but it's like not lo- it's not so long that it would you know be this huge commitment. Um, but I I read I read the book and um yeah it's. It, it's super fascinating it and, it and you know it's not it's not like some book that was written in retrospect by you know it's not like this episode's gonna be you know i just like did some research on this thing that happened decades ago and like made a wrote a script about it like this dude this is like first hand a first hand chronicling of a bunch of information that he extracted from a series of freedom of information act requests and so it's like it's like it's like a fucking it's like the bible of like here's all this horrible shit the government did in the 50s very very fascinating to read two committees were formed to investigate illegal cia operations in the u.s the rockefeller commission formed by newly instated president gerald ford and the Church Committee, led by Senator Frank Church. Thanks to these committees and marks, everything we now know came to light in 1975. The drug dosing, the torture, the electroshock, the deaths, the fact that most of the subjects were tested on against their will, it all got pushed out into the light. So how did Sidney Gottlieb, a man who came to be known at the CIA as the Black Sorcerer, go back to a normal life when he retired? Did he ever? After leaving the CIA, Gottlieb declared his entire decade plus of research a total bust. He ran a hospital in India for people with leprosy for 18 months, returned home and got a master's degree in speech therapy so that he could help teach kids to overcome the type of stutter he struggled with throughout his life. He just really bought the entire I'm trying to make amends for a lifetime of crime against humanity starter pack. Ultimately, he spent the twilight of his life practicing folk dancing and playing tennis 
while fending off a variety of lawsuits from victims as more and more information about MKUltra came to light. He died in 1999, and true to his life of secrecy, his wife refused to tell the New York Times his cause of death. So, you know, the one the one thing that we can rest easy knowing is that he never got to find out if Y2K was real. <laughs> he was on his deathbed just like, Meredith, do you think the computers are going to turn over? Do you think it's all going to be for naught? Yeah, he, he never found that out. And he never got to hear the 2000 smash hit Smooth by Carlos Santana and Rob Thomas. So it, it, it all equals out. Like it's... He was on his car- deathbed ca- like... Karma. He was on Karmic. his deathbed like, are they really gonna let Die Hard with a Vengeance be the last Die Hard? We gotta get Bruce back for one more. Come, come here, come closer. Are you... Is he here? Yes, honey, I got him. Come here, my, my great friend, Rob Thomas, the lead singer of Matchbox 20. Come closer. Oh, okay, Sydney, I'm here. What, what, what is it? I'm, I'm dying, Rob. Oh, no. I knew this time would come, but I just, I don't know how I'm going to live in a world without you. Rob, I have to tell you something. I have to give you my wisdom from a lifetime lived before I pass away off of this mortal coil. Life, it's just like the ocean under the moon the same sweet emotion that I wanted to. You got that kind of loving that would be so smooth. Give me your heart. Make it real. Just forget it. <laughs> you can't believe you pulled that out. I can't believe. I am almost disgusted. That joke was so funny. I'm, I'm repulsed by it. <laughs> I can't believe you knew the lyrics to Smooth. I'm I'm disgusted by you. <laughs> and Rob Thomas was like, oh, okay, Sydney. I will make it real. I won't forget about it. <laughs> Cut to Make it real or else we'll get about it. So what of Frank Olson? That whole thing was really shady, right? And considering everything we know and don't know about MK Ultra. There was probably something more going on behind the scenes than the official CIA story, right? Over 20 years after his death, in 1975, when the Rockefeller Commission released its report, it contained many declassified government documents. One of the accounts was about the 1953 experiment on Frank Olson. The report revealed to the public that Olson was dosed with LSD by Lashbrook and Gottlieb during the weekend getaway and that it likely contributed to his mental breakdown. Or maybe it didn't. There was something more we found out later. The Olsen family intended to sue the agency, but they settled out of court for the equivalent of $3.8 million in today's money. Then, in 1993, Frank's wife died. The bodies were going to be buried together, and so they dug him up. While he was exhumed, a second autopsy was performed on him. Might as well, right? There was nobody around to say no. The 1953 autopsy claimed that there were cuts all over Frank's body. It was the reason why the CIA wouldn't allow an open casket funeral. The 1994 autopsy found that he had no cuts anywhere on his body. Instead, there were large swellings on his head and a large injury on his chest. They weren't from the fall. They came from before he took the plunge. The forensic evidence pointed to Olsen being attacked and forced out the window. The doctor performing the autopsy suggested a likely homicide. Who the fuck saw that coming? (laughs) Yeah, wow, shocker. Are you telling me that this guy didn't just randomly go insane and kill himself for no reason? After being experimented on by the government that was torturing people and killing people throughout, you're like, telling the entire me 1950s? That, that after two visitations with a government-paid psychologist, 
after being shepherded there by top secret shadowy governmental agents and he just happened to fall out of a window. You're telling me that that wasn't just an accident? I don't know. I don't know. Listen, don't worry about that. You got to put it out of your mind. You got to just forget about it. It's MK Ultra. Mind control experiments. Dosing elephants with 300 pounds of acid. This life ain't good enough. I could create mind zombies that I can control. Well, I think you said 300 pounds. I did say that, but I was also. That is so much acid. 300 pounds of acid. They, they, they put, they, they gave that elephant 300, 3000 times the lethal. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like. Which is like a few milliliters. Yeah, no. Like, yeah. can you imagine 300 pounds of that? Your brain would just, you would get scattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't die. You would just, you would just like, you would just, you would implode and then just like reform. More details were revealed in declassified CIA documents. On the night of the incident, Olson and Lashbrook's hotel room received a phone call minutes after his deadly drop. Phone transcripts showed that Lashbrook placed a call afterward and said the words, Well, he's gone. The receiving end replied, Well... That's too bad. Another report showed that Lashbrook called Gottlieb on the hotel phone that night, meaning it was Gottlieb on the other side of the exchange. So what can we take away from all of this? A healthy distrust of the government seems to come to mind. Or maybe that we should thank our lucky stars for the Freedom of Information Act and paperwork filing snafus. We probably need to become better as a country at holding people accountable for their actions within their lifetime. Some of the people involved, like Dr. Cameron, died before the things they did were brought to light. Others, like Gottlieb, lived full and happy lives after the things they did were discovered. Some of them we never even knew were involved. There's a bigger discussion here about the cost of progress. It's an ethical dilemma that has plagued most of modern societal evolution. From the development of the atomic bomb and the can of worms that opened up, to the cell phones we keep in our pockets that are manufactured through methods we'd rather not think about. Whatever the intention of the men involved in MKUltra were, The program itself was designed with protecting the American people in mind. The fear of Russian advancements and biological weapons wasn't unreasonable, and yet the program victimized countless, mostly marginalized people and didn't actually yield any useful results. It was all for nothing. But what if MKUltra had cracked the code of mind control? What if Russia really did pose a legitimate threat in biological warfare and that research saved us? Would all of the death and torture have been worth it? As technology advances and has larger implications for the world around us, we all collectively ask that question more and more. Tech companies have built out entire ethical design departments. There are more watchdog groups than ever, and insider whistleblowing is an almost daily occurrence. All because society is outgrowing the old way we used to think about progress and its cost. Instead of assuming that we need to achieve progress at any cost, maybe we should stop and ask ourselves if the progress is worth the cost. Yeah, it's um there's there there's some there's some like conspiracy theory style approaches to MK Ultra. There's like some little extra conspiracy theory type stuff that's been tacked onto it. And I can see, I can see why, um, because as is, it's not a fun thing to talk about, really. So you got to dress it up with like the more kind of science fiction-y stuff and lean into the super soldiers and things like that. Um, the Manchurian candidate, like the Manchurian candidate sure as fuck didn't talk about any of this shit. Like, um, cause, cause it's not fun or entertaining. It's, it's, it's just, it's a horrible torture of people against their will. 
Um, and you know, this stuff, this stuff, you know, has gone on in, in secret in the U.S. government for a long time. And this is just, this is just a little tip of the iceberg of the things that have happened. Um, and we, we know, we know very little about, you know, we, we know a small percentage of the things that the U.S. government has done in the pursuit of like national security, public health, scientific advancement. Um, you know, this story we talked about the, uh, in the, in the QAnon episodes, uh, it was talked about the time that the, uh, government basically experimented on a bunch of black men that all had syphilis and basically was were like they were unknowingly giving them like placebos and not telling them the severity of their illnesses and at the time at the time when this happened syphilis was a very treatable condition and a lot of these men you know just were in this program being paid for years and a lot of them you know their syphilis worsened a lot of them died when they could have easily you know cured this with the the, the modern medicine that existed at the time um you know they were basically just like unknowingly subjected to these experiments that in many cases like killed these men and nobody cared um we we know little bits and pieces of the horrible things that have gone on that like specifically the US government has done to us and people abroad um and who knows like the true you know we don't we don't know the reality of like everything that they've done um yeah it's just it's it, it it's truly fucked up and I, I think a lot of people don't like to talk about it because it just makes you feel powerless right yeah i think that last thing you said goes to my final thoughts of like the the thing that's so terrifying about mk ultra is that this was coming up on a hundred years ago 30 more years and it'll be 100 years ago. And yet it feels like there's all of these other things that you just know the government's doing that we are unaware of and we probably aren't going to find out about. And it's just so existentially terrifying that especially during certain time periods where there are um, where there are raised hackles due to international incidents or domestic bouts of an instability or lack of equilibrium you know that this shit is being done here like yeah we know about the the black sites in poland and the black site you know in and guantanamo and like all of these places where extra legal horrific things are being carried out in the name of in air quotes democracy i'm not giving that a pass those are all evil or they're not evil maybe they're the the price of having a country i don't know every every you know like you said multiple times in this before, you know, uh, it's about do the ends justify the means uh, or the, do the means justify the ends. Um, and um, I don't have the answer to that question, but it's just terrifying to know that there's that these things are happening right now. And there's not really anything you can do about it. Yeah, because I mean, because you, you don't know about it, like, you know, and but even if you even if we did know about it, like we know about all of these, like, you know, like the Snowden leaks where it's like, oh, yeah, they're just spying on all of us. Yeah, and we're just like, there's nothing we can really do. It's yeah, like, there's nothing you can do. You like, know? Nor- normalize. The, the Patriot Act was put into effect, like, 20 years ago at this point, and we all just kind of, like, accepted it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, it... it we we the, the the frustrating thing about it is you know we we talked about we we we've done several episodes talking about conspiracy theories um there was the QAnon series obviously that went very deep into this specific conspiracy theory slash political movement and it's been yes and it was it's and it's been discussed in various other episodes as well and in my real life i find myself you know taking this position many times um but these things are real and they're actually happening and they're 
horrible and they're horrifying. And the last thing that I want to do is be a cuck for the government. But you find yourself in this position where you're having to defend things that you don't want to defend because they're being criticized for erroneous reasons. So you have all these grifters who are capitalizing off of the distrust of the American government in the American people, crafting these made up stories about things that are happening with like satanic pedophile rings or whatever it is. And then you and then you find yourself being like, that's not fucking true, man. Like, they're not doing that like that. Like, here's all this evidence. And, you know, here's this like. This picture is not from an underground dungeon underneath the comet ping pong with Obama playing ping pong with a child slave. It's from the White House and it's like his nephew visit like you're, you're sitting there like def- and it's like, I don't want to do this. Like there's real bad shit happening. And all that you're doing with this bullshit, these bullshit conspiracy theories and made up stories is you're just like deflecting and distracting away from the real horrible shit that actually is happening that nobody does anything about because it's not interesting or something like it's not as interesting of a story as the made up bullshit. Um, and it's just I just find it really frustrating because, you know, all the times I ever sat and like did the due diligence of like debunking something about how the American government was doing some evil thing. I just think back on it and I'm just like, I don't I, I don't want to do that like this. Like I, they are doing horrible things and I and I just wish we could talk about those things. But- talk about those things and not talk about the weird bullshit made up things that people like like to think that they <laughs> are doing. Yeah. And you're like, bro, the, the house is on fire. Like, yeah. can we can we talk about how the house is on fucking fire? Yeah. No. And I- and I think right. I think the reason why people do that is for the thing that you just said before, which is like that stuff. We're powerless. Like, we don't even know about it. There's nothing we can do about it. But, like, President Trump personally fighting, like, a literal demon evil force. Like, like that, like, that feels like something where you're just like, oh, we can actually stop this. Yeah, and we can actually, like, do something about it, too. Like, if we just retweet Trump saying Pelosi is the devil again, that, that has a tangible effect where, you know, it doesn't if we just sit here cower in fear and are completely helpless and there's nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, I think that's, that's the most disturbing part of it is like, we're, we're, we're caught in this endless loop of feelings of powerlessness leading to actively crafting a kayfabe of a more, um, of a version of reality that we have more control over, which endlessly pulls us further and further away from addressing real issues, which just cycles, you know, the snake eats its own tail over again. And we get further and further away from knowing about anything or having any power over changing it. I mean, I guess what I would say to that is I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This is <laughs> this has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com where you can find my comics like the Eisner Award nominated Everyone is Tulip or everyoneistulip.com. You fucking you fucking shill. <laughs> hey man. This might be the only time I ever get nominated for an Eisner, so if nobody, if you, if anybody's listening to this and doesn't know what that means, the Eisners are the Oscars of comics. And my graphic novel with Nicole Gu, Everyone Is Tulip, got nominated for Best Digital Comic at the Eisners. You're gonna get and nominated for three more Eisners. I hope so. Uh, from your from your lips to Kirby's ears, the great Kirby in the sky. But I'm I'm over the moon. I'm thrilled. 
And if anybody listening to this show is a comic book professional, which I know there are a significant number of, please consider voting for Everyone is Tulip this year for Best Digital Comic, because we're up against Jeff Lemire, and he's probably going to win. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? If you can take down, you can take down Big Daddy Lemire, you can do anything. (laughs) Yeah, except it's not going to happen. So I I love Jeff Lemire. So I'm really, I'm really having a, I'm really having a hard time. I'm like, who do I, who do I root for here? (laughs) Jeff Lemire seems like a real great guy. My agent represents Jeff Lemire too. And I'm low key like, who are you going to vote for? Who, what are, what are your allegiances? Yeah, who are you voting for? Are you voting for the guy that brings in millions of dollars to your agency every year or me? Because I'll walk. I'll walk right out I mean, that door. You, you can't do that, though. You can't because, as you just said, like, that's not going to work. You can't go the route of, like, threatening or a power play. What you got to do is appeal to his sense of wanting to be a contrarian hipster. And you got to be like, listen, the fucking mainstream choice is to choose Jeff Lemire, this, you know, one of the top 1% of comic book artists and writers that is a known quantity. And like people know his name outside of like inside baseball comics industry. And he has like a fucking Netflix show. That's the mainstream choice. The fucking punk rock choice is your boy, Baby Bakes. <laughs> Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet other than voting for me during the Eisners? You can find me walking, slinking down a quiet San Francisco side street with a with a drunk businessman in tow, laughing, joking, heading to a local brothel for some nighttime fun that I've promised him. We head into the brothel. We go into a room. He drinks more from the bottle of whiskey that I've supplied with him and um, gets a little happier. Gets a little bit more starry-eyed. He gets a little bit more introspective. He starts saying things that he would never tell anybody, let alone a stranger. All the while, the objective eye of the camera is peering in through a nearby mirror. It's actually a window into a secret room. As he divulges that he hates his wife, and other completely useless bullshit that provides no value to anybody. And this is all a complete waste of time. And the government has burned millions of dollars on just like letting a bunch of maniacs like play, pretend and have fun for some bizarre reason. And you can't find me on social media because I don't have social media because I'm not a I'm not a big tech cuck like some people. And you can also, oh, but if you want to pay respects to the dear, sweet, beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, dapricerights.com, where you can get his book that has never been nominated for an Eisner because it's not a sellout. <laughs> this is this is how this is how it's gonna be. You're throwing me. You're not you're not putting your support behind me. Your you're Zoom, accusing me. Your Zoom name is Eisner nominated Dave Baker. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, dude. <laughs> I want you to know that it was also Eisner nominated Draven Sinok and Eisner nominated Vincent the Ox. So, you know. So more pretentious than I was thinking? <laughs> My family and I played D&D last night over Zoom. So, That's all a- of the all of the things you're referencing were just me being silly for the Zoom. Oh, that like likely excuse. You don't think yeah. you think, I, you think I I'm was, just making this up? I was DMing for my mom's fucking Pathfinder campaign. That's why it <laughs> says Eisner nominated Dave Baker. <laughs> I mean, would you prefer it to be Eisner nominated Vincent the Ox? I absolutely can change it to that. It's Eisner. in the it's in the bylines of the Eisners. I didn't make it up. 
it says right there, if you get nominated, you have to change you your have Zoom to change handle. Your Zoom handle? <laughs> yeah. I didn't make this up, man. The weird the weird thing is that was that was written into the bylaws of it like back in the seventies. And yeah, people were really like, What weird. does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, weird. Uh, but you can also uh, follow us on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes. Search for the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. You can join our Discord server where we also talk about the show, make memes, talk about TVs and mo- TV shows and movies and all kinds of different stuff that's like vaguely related to the show. Go to bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our website and click on the shop where you can get some merch that has some cool Deep Cuts designs on it. You can get the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency Junior Sleuth patch at deepcutspod.com. Um, and I have nine copies left of the simple code tape comic. So if you want to, if you still want to pick up the cassette slash full color comic release, it's our nine song album. That is a rock opera about the rise and fall of Napster. And it's on a hi-fi high quality cassette tape. And the tape comes packaged with a five color, uh, five page full color comic book starring Dave, Andrew, Hillsmer, and Zero, um, drawn by Brandon Ebbett, colored by Brandon Ebbett, color, cover colors by Shannon Willette, and written by Papa Pricey. Um, there's nine copies left. We sold out one one, one uh, order of it, and we I got another order, and we sold that one out almost. We have nine copies left, and then we probably won't order any more for a long time. So they're still available. Let's go to deepcutspod.com, click on the shop. The tape will be there, and we have nine left. Get them while they're hot. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, Anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, dear listeners, there you have it. Another fine edition of our show. And now that the mystery of who I am has been unraveled, you may wonder what's next. Well, stay tuned, because as they say in the funny books, never the end.